Live from this is the Just End the Suffering Podcast. For the win. Got it! Oh! He broke his head. Follow me. Follow me to freedom. Here's your host, Mike Phillips. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the latest episode of the Just End the Suffering Podcast, featuring New York Sports Talk and Long Suffering Fan. I'm your host, Mike Phillips. We got a good show for you this week. We are getting ready for the NBA playoffs here in the Tri-State area. Both the Knicks and the Nets hosting series the first round. The Knicks, the four seed in the East, they're taking on the Atlanta Hawks. The Nets, the number two seed, they are taking on the Boston Celtics. We have a preview of each series in this week's podcast. And we joined by Mark Byrne of the New York Post to break down Knicks Hawks as we have coming up in just a bit. Also joined by Martino Puccio, longtime friend of the podcast, big NBA guy. We're going to talk about the Nets-Celtics matchup. Martino's a big Celtics guy. Got insight on them. A lot of insight on Brooklyn as well, so we'll keep an eye on that series as well. Make sure you lock into the end of the show this week for our pop culture segment. We're joined by Alan Austin. He's doing something a little fun here. We got together a group of the Justin the Suffering podcast contributors in the pop culture category. We have compiled a composite ranking of the 23 MCU movies to date. Alan and I will break down the list, discuss all the films in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and more in that segment as well. But we'll get us started with this week's opening tip. We'll give you my quick take on the NBA playoffs right after this. Three, two, one. Y'all ready for this? The opening tip. And here we go. All right, opening tip time here, talking about the NBA playoffs. And I have to say, it's been a while since the NBA playoffs actually mattered in New York. It's been a bit, because remember, we have had two teams that have not been very good for a while. The Knicks have not been in the playoffs since 2013. It was that 54-win Carmelo year. They've been miserable ever since. This year has been a notable exception, and it's nice to get the Knicks back in the playoffs. And you've seen the buzz around here with the Knicks, and... People forget how popular the Knicks are in this town because they've been so bad for so long, but this team's gotten a lot of excitement going. It's very cool to see town getting jazzed on Knicks. The Nets, on the other hand, they also went all in with that Celtics trade 2014 epic disaster. They brought in Kevin Garnett, Paul Pierce, Jason Terry to try and quick shot a winner in Brooklyn. They got one second round appearance out of it. Had to rebuild on the fly. Got better quickly to the credit of Sean Marks and company, but they were not a title threat until they brought in Kyrie and Kevin Durant. Right now, the Knicks are the biggest story in this sport, in my opinion. They have home court against the Hawks in the first round. They have a lot of interesting things to consider in this series. They have a guy who should win coach of the year in Tom Thibodeau. He probably will not because the NBA media is going to give it to Monty Williams for building culture in Phoenix for whatever reason. Listen, the Suns got Chris Paul coming in there with a very talented young team. That played just as big a part as Monty Williams' culture. Tom Thibodeau came in here, got basically a very similar roster, the one that was god-awful last year, and has got them into a 41-win team that was probably on a pace to win 50 if we played a full season, or at least get close to it, and make the playoffs. That's impressive. The Knicks beat the Hawks three times in the regular season. It doesn't mean much in the playoffs, obviously. You have to look at it and say, okay, now you're locking in this one opponent, you have to see 
can the Knicks slow down the Hawks' offense? Because Trey Young, obviously, is a superstar player. He can make his points. They have plenty of talented role players like DeAndre Hunter. Clint Capel could be a big issue for the Knicks down low because he could defend the rim and he can score offensively. And the Knicks are relying on the Nerlens Noel Taj Gibson duo down low. Clint Capel gets those guys in foul trouble. You have issues. They have some. Hawks also have some talented scorers. Bogdan Bajanovic is a is a big threat. John Collins. You got plenty of people there who can be issues. The Knicks also are a team built on defense. They need to get enough offensively. They need to get plenty out of Derrick Rose. Got to be carrying the ball at the point. This is going to be a series where this is going to be very tight. I think it's going to be a long series. I think the Knicks will win this in six games. I think home court's going to be massive in this series. The fact they have it, as opposed to having to start in Atlanta. I think Knicks in six, the Knicks will be a lot of fun. It'll be a lot of juice when the Knicks are playing these games. The Nets, on the other hand, the biggest title contender in this town, one of the biggest in the league, thanks to the big three of KD, Harden, and, and Durant, and Kyrie, trying to their mark in the city. Because right now, it's been a Knicks town. It's been there for a long time. The argument that I'm making, oh, you see all the kids on the street. They're all wearing net jersey. They're all like KD and Kyrie and Harden. That's a sign that you can make some progress, but you have to win to keep those kids from jumping ship to the Knicks if the Knicks start being good. First round, they draw the Boston Celtics. Remember last year was the conference finals. Not the same team. Jalen Brown is out for the season. That's a big blow. They still have Jason Tatum, who's very dangerous. He's dropped 50 on the Wizards in the playing tournament last night. And I think... And we're getting recording on Wednesday, the 19th of May. And I think it's important to remember, the Celtics are not as good defensively as they've been. That's a problem when you're playing the Nets who can score the ball in bunches. And that's going to pay a benefit because Jason Tate will get his points. And that's not great defensively. But the other three guys are going to go bananas. I think this team is going to win the series. I think five games. Like I said last week, you'll get the three get three zero lead. Boston steals one at the Garden. Boston Garden come back here, win Game Five in Brooklyn. That's it. I these go to plan. If both teams win their first round series, which I think is very possible, these teams could both be in the second round. Something has not happened since nineteen eighty four, and both of them lost in the conference semifinals that round. They can even end up playing each other if Miami finds a way to top the Bucks. Because the Bucks are the three seed, that would be the Nets' natural opponent. If the Bucks lose, that means Miami plays the Sixers, and the Sixers are going to run train over the Wizards or the Pacers, whoever comes out of the other playing game. Doesn't matter. Sixers are going through. You could have Knicks Nets the second round. That'd be a lot of fun. One last thing before we get to our NBA New York specific previews here on the unknown the playing tournament. I know the two East games were lousy. I know that Jason Tatum ran the Wizards off the floor and the Pacers just dominated the, the uh, Hornets. I think that this is something that I love. I love the idea last year we saw Portland and Memphis playing the bubble last year to try and sell that last spot in the playoffs. I think it adds intrigue to the regular season because the race for those last couple of spots is interesting. I think including the seven is a necessary move because if it's just the eight, it's not as much stakes because it's like, okay, which of these three mediocre teams is going to make it? I think this year the fun is that the Lakers, who have all the injuries, fell into the seventh seed, had to play this thing as opposed to having to get a bye straight into the playoffs. So they got to beat Steph Curry, who has been scoring the basketball at a godlike clip, do that, get themselves to the seventh seed, or if they lose it, go to the eighth seed game where they have to win a game 
against either Memphis or San Antonio, which they'll do. But the potential of winner go home is there. I think that's one problem that the NBA playoff format has. And the basketball is always fun, but the talent always prevails in the long run. So unless you guys have a two really even matched teams, you don't get that game seven do or don't go home setting very often. I think that's a massive difference compared to the other sports where NFL, every game is like that. The NHL feels like you're getting a game seven almost every series because these teams are so evenly matched and the playoff hockey is so physical. Kyle basketball, obviously one and done. Winner go home in the NCAA tournament. You get more of that in basketball, that's huge. And I think that makes it a lot of fun going forward. We'll talk more about the basketball. We're going to be joined by Mark Berman of the New York Post talking about Knicks Hawks right after this. Basketball is my favorite sport. I like the way to dribble up and down the court. Just like I'm the king on the microphone. So it's Dr. J and Moses Malone. I like slam dunks and taking it to the hoop. My favorite play is the alley Ooh, I like the pick and roll. I like the give and go. Because it's basketball of Mr. Curtis All right, I am back here. Happy to be talking New York Knicks playoff baseball. Getting ready for their series with the Hawks that tips off on Saturday. Joining me today, the guy who covers them for the New York Post, Mark Berman, is on the line. Mark, how are you? Uh, doing terrific. Uh, it's been uh, a fun uh, week of hype, uh, getting ready for the Knicks' first playoff game in uh, eight years. Absolutely. I mean, this season has been pretty wild. Can you... What? Let's go back to December for a minute. Imagine if this season getting ready to tip off. Tom Thibodeau starting this year with much a very similar roster to the one the year before. Someone went back in time and said to you, "Mark, in five months, this team will be not only in the playoffs, but hosting a playoff series." What would you have said back then? I would have laughed because uh, this was roughly the same roster um, as last season. Uh, with a couple of modest additions in free agency. You know, the draft netted Obi Toppin, who we thought would make an impact. And the irony is that he didn't <laughs> make that big an impact. And, uh, and Emmanuel quickly, we didn't think, would uh, make an impact. And he did. It was, it's just so amazing how coaching matters in the NBA. And a lot of people think it's in players' league. But when a coach like Tom Thibodeau comes in and changes the culture, uh, it really highlights, you know, why these guys get paid what they get paid. I mean, it's not like uh, Thibodeau broke the bank either. I think he uh, signed about $5 million a year. But it's really amazing. And listen, I've written to it. I think the pandemic helped the Knicks quite a bit. You know, the, the... abnormal conditions. I think they were, they didn't face the same distractions that a, a New York team usually faces, especially with the, with the media being uh, basically, uh, you know, not, not allowed to be around them. And uh, it was very limited access. And I think the garden being at uh, either empty or at 1900 fans worked to their favor also. I think, you know, R.J. Barrett said in preseason he thinks it might be a good thing uh, for the Garden not to be filled because so many 
top players around the league, they look forward to coming to a packed garden and putting on a big show. So I think that worked to their favor too. Yeah, it did. I feel like the big difference to this team, besides Thibodeau's coaching, obviously, is the big lease that R.J. Barrett and Julius Randle took from last year, this year. I mean, beginning of the year, most people would have said, okay, we'll wave goodbye to Randle after the season. He's the money to chase another star. But those two have become such key linchpins of the team. I feel like it's such a big turnaround. What have you noticed like about these two, their leaps this season? It's just remarkable. Uh, you know, Barrett doesn't even get named to one of the two all-rookie teams after being the number three pick in the draft last season. And he wasn't even considered a top-ten rookie last season. And now this season he looks like he's a budding all-star. His three-point shooting has been uh, much improved, especially on those corner three-pointers where he looks so smooth. Last season, it looked like he was going to break the backboard. Uh, and the three-point shooting of Julius Randle has been spectacular. Uh, you never see a jump from 28% to 42% for a guy going into his seventh season. It's just unheard of. And it just, you know, when, when I try to figure out how all this happened, I also go back to the fact that the next season ended March 11, 2020, uh, in Atlanta. And they weren't invited back to the bubble, to the Orlando restart. And they had so many more months, you know, to work on their game individually. They really took advantage of that. Instead of, you know, maybe being in the bubble and playing games, they did different things to maybe Randall was able to get into better shape. Uh, it was less wear and tear on his body playing those games in the bubble where the Knicks didn't have to. I don't know. I'm just trying to figure out how all this happened. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of theories, but these guys worked their butts off during that long, long, long off season, and it's paid off dividends. It absolutely has. And I also think the thing that's most notable about this team, feel like the reason why the fans love it so much, is that this team is, plays defense such intensity that it's not been seen since probably the 90s teams of the Knicks. And I think a lot of that goes to Thibodeau, but a lot of credit goes to these players who are buying in and executing on the, on the basketball, and that's something we haven't seen in this team in years. Right. And, you know, Thibodeau comes in as, you know, a defensive master. And you thought maybe is this a little overrated? No. What I get from talking to the players is they hear things from Thibodeau about defense that they've never heard from any of their prior coaches. He is able to teach defense as well as his staff, especially guys like Andy Greer. Uh, and Dice Yashimoto, guys who have been with him before, like they, he teaches defense a certain way, and he explains it a certain way that it makes sense, and it's stressed, and the film work is so detailed. And then when they game plan for for a team, you know they are given certain instructions on how to defend this club, and it somehow sinks in, which shows what a great teacher that Thibodeau is. Uh, so, yeah, defensively, uh, you know, they led the league in uh, opponent scoring average and opponent's three-point shooting. Listen, for the last seven seasons, when the Knicks missed the playoffs all those seven seasons, every team seemed to be wide open from the three-point line. The Knicks were always scrambling around on their switches, and it would wind up with an open three-pointer from uh, one of their uh, opponents. And this season, it seems they're just contesting everything. 
And you just got to tip your hat to Tom Thibodeau. Yeah, you absolutely do. He's done a good job getting the most out of this roster. I think one of the big turning points of the season was when they traded for Derrick Rose because his arrival sort of really gave them an extra car that needed, gave them some leadership. I mean, Derrick Rose, the first time around, was not a good fit here. I think, the what do you think you've seen this time with Derrick Rose made it so much more effective this time? Yeah, you're totally right. If they don't make uh, the Rose trade, you know, they're probably fighting for 10, you know, to get into the play-in tournament. When when Rose finally arrived, uh, Super Bowl Sundays when they made the trade, he played two days later uh, against Miami. I think there were three games under five hundred, uh, maybe four, but I think it was three games under five hundred. He absolutely upgraded that position uh, at point guard, which is their weakest position on the team. Though he didn't start, I don't think Thibodeau wanted to ruffle feathers. You know, Alfred Payton had been the starting point guard and somehow still is. Uh, But Derrick Rose's leadership, his defense has been good. It's amazing to watch him hit three-pointers and be willing to take them in his second go-round in New York. Because in 2016-17, when he played for Jeff Hornacek, he barely ever took them. And I remember doing a story late that season we were in Philadelphia, and I remember Derek uh, telling us that Hornacek had a meeting with him and said, listen, we really want you to take more three-pointers, you know, even if you don't feel uh, as comfortable. If you're open, it hurts the offense if you don't take them. Well, so we did this story, and he like, took one three-pointer for the last six games he played before he had surgery. It was bizarre. He like still won't take them. So now he's developed a three-point shot. He's been always uh, terrific at getting to the basket. He's a great finisher. And I find defensively he's a different player. He's so much more active in the passing lanes, knocking balls away. Uh, It's been great. I'm just concerned. You know, he got 39 minutes in Los Angeles, uh, you know, a week and a half ago in the overtime loss. And he hasn't actually been the same since. They rested him coming back from that road trip and then in the they also didn't like his defense uh, in the next game against Charlotte, and they uh, benched him for the final, like, 16 minutes. And then the other night in the finale against Boston, he didn't shoot well. So he's, I think his, he, he had sprained his ankle. So I'm hoping it's 100% because he's a huge kid. He absolutely is. I mean, that's sort of a key question for this team heading into the series in Atlanta is the point guard rotation. I know Nick fans are frustrated with the amount of time Minutes Alfred Payton has gotten down the stretch, especially when Rose and Emmanuel could be more effective. Has Tom Ditto sort of indicated that he's open to tweaking their minutes here? Or do you think it's going to be more of the same as we head into the series? Yeah, I mean, I asked him on Zoom today, uh, you know, are you mulling a uh, starting lineup change with a point guard? And added, uh, you know, it looks like Alfred has lost some confidence. I mean, it's so clear cut now. I, I mean, he just has hit rock bottom. Watching him in Boston was painful. And not in Boston, but against Boston uh, last Sunday. Uh, he couldn't do a thing right on offense. It was it was scary. Uh, you know, he was scoreless. But even like he, 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 he drove to the basket on two occasions and got blocked. He missed a runner, where after which he barely walk, uh, ran down court, down court on defense. He was like staring at the floor. His body language was not right. There's something wrong. 
and I'm hoping that the coaches are really in his ear this week to get him back. His mind looks lost. However, Thibodeau today, you know, made it seem that, you know, we like our depth and, you know, we, you know, Alfred does other things besides shoot the ball. Uh, but he did make a reference to Frank Nilakina and that he would try to find a role for a player who has been mostly out of the rotation this season. But they're playing Trey Young. And I remember a couple of years ago, Frank did a good job on Trey, you know, when Trey was a rookie. Uh, and, and Frank, with his long arms and his doggedness, he, he harassed him. So I think Tibbs is looking at Frank as a spot player, not to bench Alfred, but maybe limit Alfred's minutes even more and maybe limit Rose's minutes because Trey is such a force. And if they could get some like 10 minutes out of Frank to defend Trey, I mean, that could be the difference in the game. Yeah, absolutely. And go get this series. I mean, you could throw the regular season record out. You know this as well as anybody that the fact the Knicks went swept the Hawks three times means absolutely nothing comes to this series. So uh, when you look at this matchup here between the Knicks and the Hawks, like how do you think the Knicks stack up here? Listen, I haven't put my prediction in the newspaper yet, but you know I've talked to a lot of scouts, and even though the Knicks were three and zero, you know you can make the case that the Knicks really never faced the Hawks at full strength. Uh, you know the first two games uh, they beat them; they were three and zero. The first two games, uh, you know, it was when Lloyd Pierce. Uh, was the head coach, and the Hawks are just a different team with Nate McMillan. They're just uh, better defensively. Trey Young is much better, much more in control with McMillan as his coach. Uh, and then in the third game, McMillan was the coach, but Trey Young got hurt late in the third quarter, if you remember, and the Knicks were down nine points. But Trey Young went to the bench. You know, actually, I'm sorry, he went to the locker room. And uh, and the Knicks rallied to win in overtime. I believe if Trey Young didn't get hurt, uh, the Knicks would have lost that game. Uh, you know, the Hawks also had some injury woes earlier in the season, and I don't know if the Knicks have ever played them when the Hawks have been fully healthy with Bogey and Gallinari and DeAndre Hunter, who's a pretty good defensive player. Uh, so. You know, and, and this is the first time for Julius Randle in the playoffs, and I'm a little worried. I mean, I think there's so much pressure on him now because everyone's looking at him as the, the guy to lead them to the promised land. And I'm worried, especially in game one, that, you know, the pressure might be a little much on him. And, and I know Atlanta's going to have a nice defense this time for him. So if push comes to shove, I think it's going to be a very close series, and the Knicks have been so good from the three-point line. But I think when push comes to shove, I think Atlanta has just a little too much firepower for the Knicks. And I think that the Hawks are going to win it in in maybe seven games, but I think more six games. Yeah, it's a very tightly contested match. I also think the Knicks have a problem down low because no Clint Capella can be an issue for them considering they're running Nerlens Noel and uh, Taj Gibson out at the five. And Atlanta's length is an underrated factor in the series, in my opinion. Yeah, that's another big factor. Uh, you know, if Mitchell Robinson was healthy, I think they'd be better off in this series because you know, there's very few centers in the league anymore like Clint Capella. He's a big, big body. 
ferocious on the offensive glass and defensive glass. And Noel, as good a shot blocker he is, he's not a great rebounder, and he's he's a small center. Uh, he, he's he's not a big guy. You know, he looks like he's more of like if you look at his body type, he could pass as a small forward even. So, you know, we talked to Noel today on the phone uh, on the Zoom, and you know, he said, "Listen, he's he knows that his job is to keep Capella off the glass." He looked like he got pushed around in that last meeting. Uh, Capella went 25 and 22, I believe, 25 points, 22 rebounds. Uh, he has been battling a foot injury, uh, Capella, but I think that's a bad matchup. And Taj Gibson's been so good this year. He's so smart defensively. He's so gritty. He Even offensively, he'll get his garbage buckets, but he also is not a big man uh, for a center. And that's going to be a rough matchup for the Knicks. And another reason why I think the Hawks might be able to squeak this series out in uh, six to seven games. Yeah, that makes some sense. I feel like we definitely going down to the wire in this series. And my last question is this. Obviously, like, you know that the Knicks, if they're going to do well in this series, need Julius Randle and R.J. Barrett to play well. Is there somebody else on the roster you think can be a big difference maker if they are to try and win this series? Great question, because there is one player, when I talk to scouts about the series, and even about the playoffs in general for the Knicks, Reggie Bullock, he's like the wild card. He's a 3-and-D uh, player who has been pretty darn consistent this year. He's been a sniper from three-point land. I believe he leads the team in three-point percentage. He has been a little erratic, doesn't have a lot of playoff experience. When he's going well from three-point range, the Knicks usually win the game. But if he's quiet and he's not you know, really making his threes. He's always going to be a great defender, and he always guards the opponent's, you know, top wingman. But they need him, you know, so the, the Knicks don't have a whole lot of firepower. They're not ranked high offensively in, in points per game. Their three-point percentage is very solid, but they don't take a lot of them. So Reggie needs to shoot a high percentage from three-point range. If he has three or so really solid games in this series, the Knicks are going to the second round. All right, there you have it. Mark Berman of the New York Post. Thanks for the time. I appreciate it. Before I let you go, how can people follow you on social media and keep up with your coverage of the Knicks in the Post? Yeah, well, thanks, Mike, for having me. Um, yeah, I mean, I have my Twitter account, NY Post, uh, Long Dash, Berman, and, you know, NYPost.com, and we're on the newsstand all across uh, New York, Long Island, Buffalo, upstate New York and Florida and California. We're a lot of places on the newsstand. I know some people aren't buying newspapers uh, as much as they used to, but uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're around everywhere. Absolutely, Mark. I look forward to following your coverage on Knicks throughout this series and beyond. Thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks again, Mike, for having me. Different shot clock to game clock. Dotson loses it. Walking the tightrope. Oh, Blake Griffin, razzle-dazzle, oh, next level, Kevin Durant, the rack attack, and one of the highlights of the year. Maybe the play of the year in the regular season finale. Razzle-dazzle flavor and bring in the spice. Oh, this is just too good.
astonishing. All right, we are back here on the podcast. Moving over to the Nets right now. You just heard Ein Eagle and Saren Kustak break down the Harlem Grove Charts as dunk from Kevin Durant and company in the regular season finale. Joining me today to break down the Nets Celtic series, friend of the podcast, big NBA guy, Martino Puccio is here. Martino, how are you? Not bad, Mike. Weather is uh, heating up over here in the Northeast, so I'm very excited about that. And my guy Jason Tatum had, um, you know, the best ever play-in tournament game, so not too bad. Yeah, how do you feel about the play-in tournament? Now we've, I mean, we're recording on Thursday. We've seen the first East and West matchups here. How do you feel about that? I don't know. I personally, I think I'm okay with it, considering the season that it's taken place in. Um, if it was in any other season, I probably wouldn't have been a big fan. But it's a hit. Like, how could you not say it's 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 anything but that, considering outside of the Hornets-Pacers game. But, like, you know, last night they got exactly what they wanted with the Warriors and Lakers. Uh, and then again, with, like, you know, you have a guy like Tatum step up like that. And even then you still have Westbrook and Beal, who are big stars in their own rights in a game like that. So it's, it's just the perfect uh, amount of exposure and um, intensity. Uh, early on because we don't really see that from teams that are kind of placed in that seating area because we usually just see them get swept or losing five. So it was a different change of pace. Yeah, I like it because I like the intensity. I know the NBA is like the hardest sport to get a game seven two because the talent level yeah. usually wins out in terms of these two teams like they're playing each other in series. So I mm-hmm. get the idea of like, hey, let's try and get some elimination games on. I think this is the model MLB. I know they want to expand the playoffs. They should take notes. I think yeah. this is what you do with you want to expand the playoffs and do this kind of format, not the whole, like, we're going to play three game series and teams pick their up. I think this is the better way to do it. Yeah, I was always, um, I've been kind of beating the drum the past couple of years of wanting at least a five game series, just like the division series yeah. does in baseball. Like, just do that. Just stop giving the better teams more chances to make up for you know being poor if they're poor in their first couple games or something that will increase the chances of it it makes the intensity of all these games that much better i know the nba doesn't want to give up potential you know seven round series uh because that's less games and less tv money but let's be real here five games is plenty for when we're having a one versus an eight it's it's you know it's more than enough more likely than not the team that's the one seed is going to win the only reference we have is the Warriors beating the Mavericks. How long ago? That's when Baron Davis was was a leaper still. So, I mean, again, there there really aren't that many examples to disprove it. But, again, it's about money. So, I understand why they're at where they're at. Yeah, I, it's different with the NHL because the NHL, it's like obviously it's a physical game. The hockey intensity goes up in knots. You get game sevens all the time. Like, you do not need to see, like – the Sixers go whitewash whoever comes out of that game tonight between the Wizards and the Pacers. Like we don't need to see them beat them brains in four games. It's just yeah, we're just delaying the inevitable. At the it's it's just I don't know. It's just it's the way basketball has always been though. So I mean, it's kind of hard to ask to have less when you already had more because you just lose money at the end of the day. It's listen, I, I won't even really pay attention to that series. I'll be honest with you. What's there to pay attention to? It's. It'll only be interesting if the if the Sixers are showing some sort of vulnerability, but I don't expect that, um, especially in that series. I don't either. Let's talk about the Nets, obviously, because I did the Knicks early in the podcast and Mark Berman talking about the Nets-Celtics series, and I think this Nets season as a whole is very interesting because they came in with big expectations. They got much higher when they made the James Harden trade, but we've barely seen these guys play, so I think it's been an interesting ride for the Nets this year. Yeah, I mean... 
there's not much you can go off of KD is it's his first season back. Um, Kyrie always has injuries. He takes more time off than any other athlete for personal reasons, whether it's mental health issues or just, you know, um, family related stuff. He, he's just been taking care of himself and that, and that's fine. But again, at the end of the day, you know, you lose Spencer Dinwiddie to the injury that he had, obviously the James Harden trade. There's no continuity on top of Steve Nash coaching his first ever team. Mike D'Antoni's basically an offensive coordinator for them. You know, it's, it's just a lot for them to do. But when you look at the talent, they have the best dribbler of all time they have. And he's also one of the better scorers of his generation. In my opinion, James Harden is one of the, and James Harden and Kevin Durant are two of the five best scorers of the past 30 years, bar none. It's not even a conversation. Um, two of which are MVPs. So again, and then having Blake there as well, Blake Griffin, just to have an opportunity for him to be on a team like this to contend is great to see. So again, there, I, who knows what to expect come this uh, playoffs. But um, again, I mean, like with all that talent, it's really fascinating to see how they manage it because it, it made a lot more sense with other fits with the big three. This felt a little bit more forced than most big threes that we've seen, you know, like with KG, Ray Allen, Paul Pierce, they were all a perfect fit together. Uh, The same with, with the heat, the same with the warriors too, like that, you know, the amount of space that they had on their offense, the movement, it was just so fantastic. And, and it was calculated with this. It's a lot of different types of players and a little bit more ball dominant with Kyrie and, and James, even though Harden can obviously play off ball. But again, it's really tough when you have all those variables and you don't play that consistently together. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, going into this series, obviously they had injuries as Durant had the hamstring issue, Harden had his own hamstring issue. And this team... The big three played eight games together. Like how big a do you think that is as we get into the playoffs? I think it's a big deal. But again, when you look at all the other teams in general, a lot of these teams have not had that much continuity throughout the season. We mentioned that, but the team that they're playing, my Celtics, they are, they're not even going to have Jalen Brown. And even then, they didn't even have all their starters play together. play together. The big four, basically, that you would call it with Tatum, Brown, Kemba, and Marcus Smart, there there was just no continuity there either. Same thing with you go with the Heat. I mean, the Bucks are the Bucks. They they've been able to stay healthy. Even the Sixers have as well. But even then, those two those two teams are the ones with the biggest question marks come playoff time because we always hype them up with the amount of talent that they have, but they never have made it to a finals or or gone to a game seven of a conference finals. So it's really just at the end of the day, we're kind of looking at a lot of question marks in the East and even in the West as well, because, you know, the Suns are there. This is their first time in years that they've been making the playoffs. Uh, the Lakers, as we just saw yesterday, I mean, there's just so many question marks. If there was ever a perfect year for the Nets to have this many question marks, it's probably this one. Yeah. I think another question mark they do have is on the defensive end, because as we know, like oh, yeah. they're not, not good defensively. Durant is not what he was defensively coming off the injuries. They still, they never really got that rim protector. He's got a bunch of bigs or getting them minutes down low. Do you think the defense issues are a big deal? It might not be in this year. I think down the road, they could have problems. I think, I think down the road, it's going to present problems. But again, how many times have we seen regular season teams um, that are relatively poor or mediocre defensively turn it up come playoffs. It's just, 
it's just such a common theme now because a lot of teams and players know, hey, if we get home court advantage, at least for the most part, then it doesn't matter how great our defensive ratings are and intensities as long as we're able to flip a switch. With the Nets, it's not really the case, in my opinion, as you mentioned with KD. He's just not going to ever be the same player of, you know, 82 games, going to be bringing it every single night for 35-plus minutes if he's even able to play that. He's just old, and now he's got these soft tissue injuries, you know, coming off an Achilles. And don't forget, he used to have foot issues as well back with the Thunder. So it's nothing completely new with him. Um, It's hard to sustain that. On top of Kyrie having the injuries that he has, it's going to take a lot. I, you know, Kate, there's an argument that KD is their best defensive player, and that's not something I love. Um, But at the end of the day, if you can't stop a team from scoring – then it doesn't really matter how many points you give up because they're more than likely to score more points than you. Yeah, I think that's true. And this first round, they get the Celtics, who obviously said, you said they won the playing game. Jason Tatum dropped 50 on the Wizards. People, obviously, then you tuned out of the NBA this year. You go back to the ball, it's like, oh, the Celtics in the conference finals, they're dangerous. As you said, no Jalen Brown. This team's not played great defense. Like, what has gone wrong for the Celtics this year? I think it's just like most of those teams that went late into the bubble. There's just a lot of lingering issues with minutes. There's injuries piling up. I don't think Kemba, I've said this about Kemba Walker, ever since that injury surfaced prior to COVID striking last year, the guy's never going to be the same. He's never going to live up to the amount of money that he's getting paid currently on his contract. And it's not necessarily his fault, but this is what happened with small guards over the course of their career when they reach over the age of 30, that he can't even be playing back-to-back nights where they're fighting to try and get to those top six seeds that Kemba Walker is incapable of playing back-to-back nights because they have to load manage his knee. The whole point of that is to get him into the playoffs so he could play these back-to-backs or these play these games that you don't have to play these extra games like the play-in tournament because of his knee. So again, Jason Tatum, I mean, he's played as great uh, as you can when you have to inhale an inhaler prior to every single game. Jalen Brown was fantastic when he was able to play. Unfortunate injury. Marcus Smart had that tennis injury, the calf um, issue against the Lakers in that one game. Um, Obviously, that was really difficult for him. And the bench is terrible. I've said that from the beginning of the season, and even last year, I didn't love it. Danny Ainge comprised this bench of a bunch of very young players that are, one, inexperienced, two, not that talented, and three, they're just they're just not ready for this moment. It's a lot on their plate for this. And honestly, when you see guys like Grant Williams having to step up and into a rotation or semi ogile it's just not good enough to get to the conference finals. It's definitely their weakest one in a while. Um, they'll be able to free up some stuff um, eventually. I think they'll try and re-sign Evan Fournier. But right now, I mean, Grant Williams, Peyton Pritchard, as good as Pritchard has been, again, it's just – Peyton Pritchard can't be your seventh or eighth guy in the rotation. Not this year. If, if he was like the ninth or 10th, 10th guy, if, if anyone ever goes 10 deep, but at least nine, then you would be okay with it. It's just the bench is significantly weak. And especially when they have to take on more minutes during the regular season, because your main four guys are missing time due to injuries. So at, at the end of the day, it just kind of stockpiles and it's a domino effect. And this is what they get. Uh, you know, just only a game or two over 500 during the regular season. So, yeah, I mean, I didn't expect much this year. Yeah, for sure. This is also an interesting spot for the Nets because this is here you figure they're going to win pretty easily. 
And you look at the fact they've had so little playing time for their guys, you wonder, like, this, in a way, sort of like an extended regular season format for them where they can use these games sort of tune up and get the big three and more minutes together. I think that's something you could look at in this series. Yeah, I think they're going to have to figure out late-game rotations, who starts a fourth quarter, um, who ends a third quarter. It's kind of all that stuff that you have to manage. Um, and especially KD, like, do they want to push Kevin Durant to play a certain amount of minutes in this series? Because I think anything less than a sweep is a – is a mess for them. Even, you know, maybe they get one game because Tatum's great and they can't play defense and say their shooting's a little bit off. The, the The Celtics are a bottom 10 team in three-point percentage defense. There's no excuse that the Nets shouldn't steamroll them. So again, I think they have to come out, like you said, and, and have like a game plan that works well for later in these playoffs. But again, the second they lose a game or some of these games become closer than they need to be, that's where pressure starts to mount in a sense because teams that are going to be competing for the conference finals and the finals are going to see a chink in the armor. And, and you know, that's very limited time for the Nets and especially a rookie head coach like Steve Nash to figure out. So I don't – I think they have more than enough talent to do it, but there's potentially all those question marks that they don't want to have. Yeah, and obviously, you said this series is not going to go very long. I said Nets in five. I figured Jason Taylor will be hot enough. They'll steal one game with him playing well. So, my your opinion, what has to happen here for the Celtics to make this interesting without Jalen Brown? <laughs> um, to make it interesting without Jalen Brown, Evan Fournier has to shoot the way he shoots. Um, pri- prior to joining the Celtics with the Magic, he was almost like a 50-40-90 f- uh, f- uh, kind of player. Um, he wasn't that high with the free throw percentage, but he was shooting fantastic from the field and, and beyond uh, the three-point arc. For that, he needs to show up. The bench rookies and players like Aaron Neesmith, Romeo Langford, um, if Robert Williams is even able to go with his turf toe issue, he needs to step up. It's all those guys. I'm not really worried about Marcus Smart bringing his intensity and great defense. Kemba, I'm, I'm weary of because he's going to have to really play a lot of minutes in this for them to have a chance. But this is all about Jason Tatum. It's about Jason Tatum taking a leap and bearing this burden of not having a fellow all-star with you, having an agent point guard who's, you know, got knee issues. The same thing with Evan Fournier as well. He's been a little inconsistent. And all these young guys, if he is able to step up and average at least 30 a game in this series, that in itself is a major sign down the road for the Celtics that, okay, we know he can handle a team like this, that no one's going to blame him for losing this series. If he has something similar, and I'm not saying of the same level to what LeBron did years ago, get to game seven against the big three of the Celtics the year they won the title, but keeping his team competitive while being one of the two or three best players on the floor is a massive win for the Celtics because you know what you have. I think we already know what they have at the end of the day, and he could beat Kobe Bryant's uh, record for most points uh, by a player by the age of 22 in playoff history. Now he's going to have to get the game six or seven in order to do that and average around like high 20s, early 30s in points. Um But again, for me, it's just all about the legacy and seeing if Tatum's able to take this next step, similar to what Luka Doncic did against the Clippers last year. If you're just able to keep it a real competitive series by dominating on both sides of the ball, then it's a win for me, as much of a win you can get in a a series that you lose in. Yeah, I mean, you are, I mean, you as a big Celtic, even you know this, they're not winning this series, like barring something very freaky. If they win this series, this is the biggest upset of a series win since... um, the, the Mavericks lost to the Warriors. Yeah. Absolutely. 
there's a, there's literally no excuse for it. You have you have two players that are top five of a generation, arguably, and on top of Kyrie Irving, and then all the other bench pieces. Like, there's no excuse for the Nets. Yeah, barring injury, to like not win this in five. Uh, but even even honestly, like if it's one injury to these guys, they shouldn't lose. Yeah, I'd say they shouldn't. I think they have more than enough. For I, I'd say it's catastrophic because like they have two of the big three go out in the series. That's why I think it gets. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so yeah, like Warriors against the Raptors. Yes. Yeah. Um, it has to be that, and even then, yeah. No, I mean, then it's just a battle of like who the best player is at that point, depending on who it is. Yeah. I think I think the one player they can't afford to lose, honestly, is James Harden. Um, because I think they've shown they've been able to win without that. But Kyrie is a bigger issue. Kyrie's been the actual most healthy one out of all of them and carrying them, which is which is odd to say because he's usually the guy who misses the most. Yeah, absolutely. And right now they're like we soon they're getting through, they got to look at some path of Milwaukee, Philadelphia, maybe the Knicks if the matchups break right in this. In the, I wouldn't even count out the Heat to be honest yeah. either. Yeah, the Heat could be in the mix there too. I mean, this feels like a year where a lot of these teams are flawed. I feel like this is a year where if you're a Nets fan and you don't at least get to the NBA Finals, it's a major disappointment considering like the type of talent you put together and knowing that the window on this team is not very big despite the fact you had three of the five top scorers in the league. You're right. There's a bunch of injuries piling up. Kyrie is approaching 30. Harden's over that. Um, and and the same thing with KD. On top of all these bench players that they have, they're not going to have many assets in the future because they traded them. You're right. It's a win now uh, window. It, it might be two to three years, you know, like another two years after this that they'll have. But you're right. There's a lot of flawed teams in here. I can't take the Bucks seriously with Budenholzer still in there. I still don't think he realizes what it takes to win. Um, in the same, I, in the same sense, I don't think they still have enough star power outside of Giannis, even though I really respect Middleton, their bench and drew holiday. I don't think that's enough. The heat, I think it was the perfect storm in the bubble for them. I still think they'll make a lot of series competitive. I wouldn't be shocked if they win a series. Um, and with the Sixers again, kind of hard to trust doc rivers at the end of the day, because he's the guy who's coached the most teams that have blown through one series leads. So it's nothing new with him. Um, again, I, I, I wouldn't be shocked if the Sixers made it to the finals. I think it's down to those two, but that's going to take a lot from Ben Simmons. I think they'll play a good enough defense and Embiid will dominate. It's just going to be at the end of the day, who has the best two players in that series and the nets for their sake and those players legacies they better step up and be the best players on the court in that one. Because the amount of pressure that they'll have strictly from not making the finals will be insane. Because I don't think they'll ever win the finals then at that point. Yeah, I think you have to at least get there this year. I mean, if you run into like, let's say LeBron and the Lakers get on a buzzsaw run, they get there mm-hmm. and they beat you. I mean, you can't, you can't, you can kind of just shrug your shoulder and say, it's tough. We're dealing with the best player and like potentially ever play the game. And I don't get, get you there. But, you're getting knocked out by like Milwaukee in the second round or by the Sixers in the conference finals. That's a tough deal as well. You, you, you can't, if you, if you don't make the conference finals, then it's, it's pathetic in yeah. my eyes. And, and also again, even to not make it to the NBA finals is, is also pathetic in my opinion. I just, you can't have this many talented players and not, and not make the finals. There's just no excuse for it, especially with the way everyone talks about these certain players, like comparing James Harden better than Dwayne Wade, saying KD is a top 10 player of all time, saying, I mean, Kyrie's exceptional. He's an all NBA player uh, when he's healthy throughout a whole season. There's just no excuse for it. We've seen these guys step up on the biggest stage 
maybe not Harden so much compared to the other two. They got to do it. There's a lot on the line legacy wise, and they've been under a lot of pressure for a large part of their career, especially Kyrie as well. After leaving LeBron, this is, is a lot more pressure than people think. And that's the worst part too, because if you go into a series and you have more pressure than LeBron James does, you're not beating him. And I've maintained this this whole time that the Lakers are winning it. It's really upsetting. I really hope they would have lost last night, but the second AD gets going, they're a deeper team than they were last year, and it's LeBron James. Like it's you're not beating them. You're yeah, I mean, even if they did lose last at the Lakers, they were not going to lose to Memphis in the second game. You just knew that was not going to happen. No, no, you, they weren't. They weren't. But anything to make the Lakers' path harder and more difficult, I'm all for it. Um, and also just the elevation of Steph's legacy too. Yeah, which I, which I think it's great to see because I think there's been a lot more respect for him now than people didn't want to have because of who he's played with over the course of his career. Yeah. I also think you're right about James Harden too. This being a big playoffs for him because I mean, he's probably on this probably the most talented team he's ever had. And I guess that if Chris Paul doesn't hurt his hamstring, they beat the, they beat the Clippers and go to the conference finals. I mean, they, they make, they make four threes even yeah. out of the 32 or 29 that they took. Yeah. They're in it. Um, And it wasn't even that one. It, it goes back further where he had like the most turnovers yeah. prior to like KD joining them. I think it was the first year the Warriors made it to the finals. Yeah. Um, where he had he uh, he dribbled off a ball off his off his leg. It was just, I mean, listen, this is he's one of the greatest scorers of all time. I think he's one of the best playmakers of all time too. He just hasn't had that moment where he gets over the hump. And I kind of feel for him because I do agree with you. Like they're probably beating the Warriors at that point. Like he got hurt in six and seven. One of the greatest point guards of all time is missing from a game. That's a valid excuse. I don't care what anyone tells me. It's a very big deal when a top five, arguably point guard of all time is not in the lineup against that team. I mean, what can you say? Yeah, I also think with him, also, I'd be a hidden benefit because he played so many minutes during the regular season those years. In fact, he missed so much time this year at the hamstring. It might be a little fresher come playoff time. Maybe, maybe um, off of that. And the best thing is to, you could sit these guys during certain rotation, like James Harden. We seen him. Those were not deep rockets teams. He could lead a team for stretches. That's how good he is. If you have Kyrie and KD sit down, Harden could carry an offense or put guys into spots that are, you know, relatively talented. They're not awful players that they have on the bench. It's just not that deep, like 10, 12 players deep. Uh, obviously a lot of teams aren't like that, but he he's good enough to, to lead it, especially, I mean, the Rockets were great at putting guys in positions that didn't have, you know, multi-talented skill sets, but they had enough of a skill set that they could exploit what they're good at, kind of like what the athletics have done over the years in baseball. He can, he could do it for eight minutes. Kyrie needs a rest. Fine. James Harden is leading your offense. How many players do you want leading your offense over him? It's like maybe three guys, maybe at the most. There's not that many. Um, So again, I think, I think they'll be fine. Steve, and it's that comes down to Steve Nash. Does Steve Nash know how to navigate around that? Does DeAntoni help him out to an extent? Because Mike's been in these situations where he has these high-octane offenses and they don't get over the hump. And like we said, he got unfortunate luck with the, with the CP3 injury. But there's just a lot of pressure riding on it. And I think, I think they'll be able to make it to the finals because these guys are just way too talented. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think it's interesting to see what happened with them in the playoffs here. Martino, thank you for taking the time to come on. I appreciate it. Before I let you go, how can you follow social media keep on some of the stuff you're doing? 
Yeah, you can just follow me at Martino Puccio on Twitter. Um, soccer season's winding down. Um, obviously, there's a ton of Mets stuff too. I mean, what is it now? Isn't it like 16 players if you count uh, yeah. some of the options that they had uh, in AAA with Syracuse as well? So, I mean, listen, I, I think the Mets are going to win the division. I've, I've maintained this for a while that they've had a shot at it. Um, they just need to get healthy. A team that's able to, like, you know, go down to, I know I'm trying to make this a little bit about the Mets, but if you're able to go down to Atlanta and win two out of three um, with, you know, a quadruple A lineup, is a generous way of putting it, and Lindor's hitting under 200. I mean, watch out for them because they get they get two potential All Stars back, and I mean, if you really want to count the Grom getting him back, um, yeah. um, and I think they're going to make a trade come summertime. Um, so again, yeah, I'll be tweeting a lot about the Mets, and who knows what happens with the Jets and and all that stuff eventually. But yeah, you go follow me on there. Yeah, absolutely. And up next, we're going to be joined by Alan Austin Smith to go through the MCU movie rankings. And you were part of this for the podcast. I got a group <laughs> of seven people together. And actually, an eighth person joined in terms of offering feedback, not submit a list. But we had put together the 23 MCU movies. You have a ranking of the Just End the Suffering podcast. Yes, that's coming up next. And you have any thoughts on, you want to share on any of these movies before I dive into this with Alan? Well, to, one thing I forgot to text you the other day was that I... I restarted them again. Yeah. Um, so I'm starting from the beginning and thank God I, you, I assume you have Disney plus, but Disney plus um, they finally have them in order. Yes. If you look through phase one now, which is so fantastic. Cause last year when I went to go rewatch all of them, they weren't in order and I had kept going on, on the internet to go and get the proper order for it. But I just restarted it. I am supposed to be finishing up Iron Man two today. So I don't know going back and looking at them. I think I think Iron Man is so it was so it was so good the original Iron Man and the order in which they came out in is the order and how good they are. Um, I wasn't that big of a fan of the third one. I thought the third one was it felt like it wasn't needed, but in the grand scheme of all of Phase One, it was necessary. But I could have if that movie never came out, I would have been okay. <laughs> and it's not to it's not to crap all over the movie. And I do love the second one too. I think. It did. Mickey Rourke and um, you know Sam Rockwell is so is so good in it. He's like one of the best villain non-villain characters in the whole Phase One era um, of movies. And I still haven't seen the Hulk in years, and I don't plan on seeing. That. <laughs> probably that. That's probably the last thing because it wasn't it. Edward Norton in that one, or Edward Norton was the one in the early two thousands, right? No, no, he was in that one. Eric Bannon was early two thousands. Okay, yeah, it was Eric Bannon. It was Eric Bannon who is uh, in Funny People <laughs> with Adam Sandler. That's that's just how I know him from. Um, and then, yeah, Edward Norton. It was just weird. And then Terrence Howard. By the way, yeah, that's one more thing because that's the most noticeable one. Terrence Howard was so much more unlikable than Don Cheadle. Yeah. So, like, that was, like, the biggest upgrade. So, thank you, Terrence Howard, for being arrogant and terrible and getting yourself fired for, like, the like the dumbest – the dumbest quote unquote power play of all time by him in Hollywood. Just totally ruined one of the best possible roles he could have ever had. So yeah. Um those are kind of all my thoughts on that. Absolutely. I'm gonna be joined by Alan Austin in just a minute to dive into all of that right after this.
All right, we are back here on the Just End and Suffering podcast. As we talk about the music, we're talking some Marvel today. We are still a few weeks out from a new show because Loki is coming out on June 9th, but we're going to have some fun today. We're going to rank all the MCU films today from 1 to 23, knowing we have the next phase of movies coming this summer, starting with Black Widow. Joining today, somebody who recently completed his first run through all the MCU movies, Alan Austin is here. Alan, how are you? Mike, thank you for having me. This is very exciting because... We get to really like see how our friends and acquaintances think of these films because they are just, you know, so eclectic and there's so many of them. So I'm very excited to, to dig in here. Yeah, before we get to the list, and I'll explain how the list is going to work in a minute. I want to ask you because obviously I think you were not one who finished all these. And then I think, I'm not mistaken, one was just the one that got you inspired to actually go back and finish up and catch up. I think what really inspired me to go back and catch up was the fact that I enjoyed them enough. Um, I had seen Endgame in theaters without seeing everything prior. I saw a couple here and there, but knowing that this is going to be a part of the pop culture phenomenon from for the indefinite future, I just wanted to get caught up and like be on board so that when the future of the when the future series came or the future movies, I'd be all caught up, ready to rock and roll. And once I started, just like when you pop open Pringles, I couldn't stop. So now I'm on the <laughs> Netflix shows, which aren't even in canon. Allegedly, and, we don't know. Right, right. So I'm like, theoretically, I'm all caught up with the MCU and the two uh, Disney Plus series and seasons one of daredevil jessica jones season two of daredevil and now i'm on season one of luke cage and i have not seen agents of shield which i have read it's not vital to the mcu no kind of there's no like distinguishing thing i need to know right now other than maybe one or two characters who may pop up in the future that's about that's about right agents of shield i mean i watched the whole way through i mean they got less and less ties in the main mcu as the show went on but like it's fun if you have time but it's not essential viewing and is it kind of like law and order style where it's just like a different procedural every weekend or every week uh they started that way then they sort of had built a like sort of like had different arcs in each season where sort of like pods of like episodes where like this arc is first eight episodes and the next eight was this and then they did so on and so forth to get through the seasons Gotcha, gotcha. Well, I'm excited to get dig into this list because I have a favorite Avenger. I want to see who your favorite Avenger is, so I'm ready when you are. Absolutely, and I also want to give you credit too because some of those movies are not available on Disney Plus that uh, you haven't seen yet. So I know, like, you had to probably go out your way find Spider-Man: Far From Home and stuff like that. Spider-Man: Far From Home had to, you know, get a friend Star's access. Yeah. So it wasn't easy, but it was worth it, and we'll get into that. Yeah, I think. If you want to watch them, obviously Disney Plus has 20 of the 23. The two Spider-Man movies are not on there yet. They should be coming by the end, of, by hopefully by June, because I know they struck a deal with Sony to get some of this inventory on there. So we'll see what happens there. But the other one's The Incredible Hulk from the 2008 version, which, again, it's probably the least essential MCU movie out there. But I'd probably have to find a DVD if you want to get your hands on that one. That would be my advice for that. Yeah, it's it's, you know... It's not really part of the MCU, in my opinion. Like, yes, it ties in because of the literally one scene at the end. And if you really care about William Hurt's character, it all ties in. But other than that, it's very loose. I mean, the Bruce Banner character has a completely different personality between the two performers. And we can get into it. But, yeah, it's, it's, it's something that is over, over-hated on. But it's not, it gets a bad rap. Yeah, I think so too. Also, if you like, if you've seen that movie, 
and they are doing the She-Hulk series. Tim Roth's Abomination is coming back. So it's another reason. If you want to go back and find out the backstory on him, that's that's a, a film you have to go watch. He's in nothing else. Yeah, I would say if you plan on watching She-Hulk, if you're a diehard like I'm becoming and like you are, I would say go check it out for She-Hulk preparation for sure. I actually watched that a couple of months ago because I had it on the Netflix DVD queue. So that's how I got my hands on Incredible Hulk. So I've seen it recently because of that. Awesome. All right. So to set up how this works, I'll give out the shout out to one of my, one of my big, big good friends, Dan Pasolacco, a friend, like longtime listener of the podcast. He helped me put together a Marvel Cinematic Universe movie spreadsheet. So like what we did is we got seven movie sets of movie ratings. So you and I have submitted our ratings to this group. Uh, John Stanko sent his in. Sandra sent hers in. Nick Frietta from the Sky Guys has sent his in. Everybody, Dan D. Martino, the Falcon Mirror Soldier with it, sent him in. And Martino Puccio was just on here talking about the Nets. He sent his as well. Peacock's already not sent ratings in because he's not seeing all the movies, but he did want to give some feedback. So he is in the feedback section. He offered some commentary on some of the movies. So as we go, we're going to go down the list. 23 to 1. This is an average rating of the seven ratings. We'll go through the list, tell you what's up, talk about the movies, give some feedback from the people, send in their thoughts on the movies. I think it's going to be fun. I'm very excited. Absolutely. And we will start at the bottom here. Number 23. We would not be all surprised here. Thor, the Dark World, Dead Last, number 23. Your take. I did not have this as Dead Last for a couple reasons. One, it has Loki. And anything that has Loki, I'm in on more so than some others. I'm very excited for the Loki series. But yeah, it's it's a little bit of a slog, and it takes all the joy out of the Thor character, and that's a big red flag. So it's another one of those useless Marvel villains. It's just got it's got the Endgame teases a bit of it, so I felt like I should go back and watch it, and I'm I guess I'm glad I did. But if you decide to skip Thor: Dark World, you're not missing much. Yeah, I mean, that's one when we were watching Endgame in theaters and all of us who've seen it are like, they're really going to make Thor the Dark World the most important movie in the entire MCU right now. We're going back to that in the time travel sequence. Yeah, I mean, good for Rene Russo and, you know, to get that that screen time. But the movie itself, Thor the Dark World, not good. Not a good one. Very, um... Blah. Yeah, the Stellan Skarsgård characters all over the place. It's just like a little much. I think they, they, I don't know if they knew what movie they were trying to make. No, they did not. And I will say on the list here, it was dead last on five of the seven rankings. So that's why it's down there. It's an average score of 22 of the 23 movies. So easily the lowest. Easily the lowest, but not my least favorite. I no, you were number 20. You're one of the two who did not have on the bottom. Very interesting. Yeah. Did you have it on the bottom? I did. It was number 23 on my list. By a, like a clear landslide, and I'll give a little sh- shout out. Dan D. Martini checked on this. Said it's perfect line summing up. It has moments, but it's so easily forgettable. Perfectly put. I don't think we need to waste any more time on him. All right, moving on. Moving on, number twenty-two on the list. Iron Man two, not Iron Man three. Iron Man two, average of nineteen point six. You were one of the, like, it's average. I mean, I had 21, you had 22. There were some, and there was one big outlier thing I saved from the bottom. Sam DeRosa had it at 14 on her list. Wow, I'd love to get, did she give any feedback? She, she did. Why? I asked her why. I said, like, why? You saw an Iron Man 2. She basically said, it's the Tony Stark needs to grow up movie. If you have that development in the movie, we wouldn't have the same character for the rest of the Iron Man timeline. Yes, based on the fact that his heart is slowly killing him, his creations are like his suit, and now creating head history for more dangerous suit weapons. 
brings a lot of teaching moments to Tony, like the hate that he had for his father because he thought he hated him was completely untrue. Left away off his troubled past. So she likes the Tony Stark character development. Gotcha. I, I do think that it's... Look, I also think grading Marvel is like grading on a curve because the production values, the talent behind and in front of the camera, all just spot on. Where I think this movie missed the mark was some of the more big set pieces. Yeah. Tony flying through his home or drunk in the suit. Uh, the big final action scene with the Mickey Rourke character. I just thought it was a little sloppy. I was not a fan of some of the big set pieces of this film. I did love the introduction of Black Widow, which I really think is what stands out in this film. Yeah, I think the problem to me is I think that you could just tell that this is probably how Falcon and the Winter Soldier is that they were just stuffing so much stuff in here to prepare for Avengers. It was not really a sequel to Iron Man. It was like, oh, we need to introduce Black Widow. We need to tease all these other things to set us up for Avengers a couple of years. And I think it gets lost a little bit in there because it's a lot, really thinking more about the suit than about Tony Stark. Yeah, I think if Iron Man 2 was a series, it probably would have been better off, better suited, if you will. Yeah. Because, what, you know, this film does have a couple things going for it. I have it higher than Iron Man 3. I, I like Sam Rockwell always, no matter what he's doing. So you have him as the Justin Hammer, which was fun to see in Luke Cage, that name pop yeah. back up. But overall, another just uneventful villain in Mickey Rourke, Whiplash, and, you know, other than that, I think there's some goofy elements that just don't quite land. Yeah, and Martino was just on here a minute ago talking about it, and he said he, he was also a big Sam Rockwell fan. He liked Justin Hammer in this movie. It's also, yeah, it also the big movie where we get the switch from Terrence Howard being Rhodey to Don Cheadle being Rhodey, which is also an interesting like, footnote in the MCU. Absolutely, and I remember years ago when it first happened, because I did see Iron Man 1 and 2 when they came out. I was upset because I was a big Terrence Howard fan as a kid. And I think I was like mad that he wasn't brought back. Now that I'm older, I know it was like, I know why. Yeah. But obviously I've warmed up to, to Cheadle since then. I think Cheadle's probably a little bit more realistic and grounded for the role going forward anyway. So, yeah, probably one of the worst power plays of all time from Terrence Howard called himself millions upon millions upon millions of dollars from giving up that role. And a future series coming to Disney plus. Yeah, and also incredible thing about it, he he's basically the Brian Dunkelman of the on the MCU. That's a great reference <laughs> for five percent of your audience, and I love it. <laughs> really dating myself there with the Dunkelman, but you if you you old school American Idol fans know exactly who I'm talking about. Absolutely. I'm right there with you. Yeah. All right, so that's number twenty two on the list, average nineteen point six. Twenty one on the list, we just talked about it a minute ago, the incredible Hulk. Not a surprise. No, I think you know, it, the movie gets a bad rap, but it also has a different tone than the MCU. As you know, like these earlier films in Thor Dark World may fall into this trap where without Tony Stark, I don't think they knew what kind of humor they wanted to be in these films. And Incredible Hulk has very little of it. Not to mention the CGI is not as good as it would later become in these MCU movies. Ed Norton's character is, you know, it's just such a like, downer the the chemistry with Liv Tyler is not quite there and really the only reason I'd suggest watching this is to prepare for She-Hulk like we said before but it does get a bad rap because it's a solid movie it's just with this MCU group of films it's just not it's not up to par plus the fact that they, re they recast Ed Norton before Avengers also hurts this movie significantly yeah and I know there was a lot of Ed Norton in like what's the word I'm looking for? Like he's the reason he's not back in. 
Yeah. Like he had creative differences. He refused to promote the film. Another guy who cost himself a lot of money. Yeah. I don't think Ed Norton regrets his decision though, personally. No, Ed Norton's an artist and artists usually stand by their work, so to speak. Yeah, and that's is one that I think is very interesting in that sense because Edward Norton plays the Hulk very differently than Mark Ruffalo does, and he plays him as more of like, you know, like a brooding Hulk where he's got like He's trying to control the Hulk powers. He's like more like moody, more melodramatic. Whereas Mark Ruffalo, as some people have said in this podcast, he's very, as John Stanko has said, he's very happy-go-lucky at all times Hulk as opposed to I have issues Hulk. Yeah, it's it's a lot like he, I know this is odd to say because. Edward Norton running out, outside Alan's, off, Alan's uh, setup right now. <laughs> You know, uh, there is Chris Pratt in the MCU, but Bruce Banner is kind of like the Andy Dwyer of yeah. the MCU. So it's very interesting. I, I think Ruffalo is just so much more suited for the part, but we only know that because he's gotten to do it so many times. Yeah, and it's also one where they never made a sequel to it. And again, I think a lot of it's tied up in the fact that Universal has distribution rights and Marvel's not going to give them any more of that money than they have to. So this is one of those where they're sort of, as we've seen in the past, there is rope. Hulk story into other movies where he's in Avengers getting a lot of plot. He's the, the planet Hulk thing gets adapted to Thor Ragnarok. So they just are fine doing Hulk in other movies, and not having to pay universal money. That's why we don't have a second Hulk film. And, you know, I know like the Tim Blake Nelson aspect of the incredible Hulk was always like a loose end. And I'm thinking they'll bring it back because Kevin Feige's too in on this stuff, making sense that I think that even though he's, you know, this Incredible Hulk stands on its own, I could see them working that storyline back in to She-Hulk. I could too, and I will give some interesting notes here on this. It was last on one chart, right? Nick had it at 23, and the highest on the board here, John Stanker had in his top 10 at number nine. Again, I, I, I can see why, because the MCU as a whole tends to have the rinse and repeat plot devices. And this one, although it had it, was a much different tone. So yeah. I can understand where he's coming from, for sure. Yeah, he's the one. I think his nine pulls it above Iron Man 2 on the list. He also said to me, and he said, so much better than the Eric Banner version. Remember the 2003 one that preceded this that was not part of the MCU. And... He enjoys Ed Norton's Darker Hulk much more than Ruffalo's Happy-Go-Lucky Hulk. So that's a big reason why. And I can see that because I, I kind of agree with him in a way because there are a lot of Happy-Go-Lucky characters in the MCU. And the Hulk, you would think, because of preconceived notions, would be this... As Ed Norton's leaving. Yes, hopefully. It, the Hulk could be this brooding character. You would expect him to be, and... Ruffalo is just the antithesis of that. He is very happy. Go look. I can see where Mr. Stanko is coming from, and I don't hate the take. Yeah, I will give Stanko credit for his takes. I mean, he's very, he approaches it very, he has his own criteria, as we've seen in discussions with him. So, yes, it's his top 10. It's in his top 10, but it's a D plus movie. Yeah, absolutely. And number, we'll go on now, number 20. We'll stick in the Stark universe. We're going Iron Man 3 at number 20 overall. By far my least favorite. So you said that Thor Dark World was by far your least favorite. Iron Man 3 is by far my least favorite movie in the MCU. I think it's overly long. I think it's drawn out. I think that, you know, it's just the whole subplot of the, the kid who's helping him out, who we later see in Endgame. I just wasn't in on it. I thought Guy Pierce played 
the poor man's Justin Hammer with more money, I guess. I, I, I don't, I thought the whole Mandarin storyline was a complete swing and a miss. And I'm interested to see how uh, Shang Chai, Shang Chi, Shang Chi. I'm interested to see how Shang Chi rectifies the man, uh, the Mandarin storyline. I just think the movie stinks. I think it's, I think it's a bad movie, Iron Man three. And then you have the end scene where a gazillion different Iron Man suits are flying around. It's just a complete and utter mess. The highlight for me is the opening scene where happy is dressed as Vincent Vega from Pulp Fiction. (laughs) That's a good pull. And I will say also before we, Get some other feedback on this movie. I want to clean up some rankings on my butt. Iron Man 2 was 21 on my rankings. Incredible Hulk was 22. So they have been right there. Iron Man 3 I had at 19. I will say, like, you're the lowest on your 23. We do have some high water marks on it. Dan has it number 11 on his list. And John Stanko has it number 14. So I, that- I, I don't see it. So here's what they had to say. Dan said, great twist of the Mandarin. He was a big fan of the Mandarin twist, so that was why he had so high. John Stanko says, I think this movie is so high because it was just better than Iron Man 2. I've seen the movie since my initial rating, which is on the sheet. I would lower it some. The bit with the kid is cliche. It's a bit too coincidental how it wraps up with with Piper coming to help out. I do appreciate how Iron Man 3 took a chance on the Mandarin. The execution may not have been ideal. It took a chance. It's something comic movies don't basically do. And he thinks that Guy Pearce is just an underrated actor. Love Guy Pierce in general. I just, I just didn't love this. You have the whole, uh, I think it's Air Force One scene where they're trying to take down Air Force One. I just think it's all over the place, and it's so sad because Iron Man One is so strong, and the sequels I think are just fodder for the MCU. Yeah, yeah. Iron Man starts the whole thing, but the other two movies are not nowhere near as good. No, that is not, and it's average seventeen point six. So a decent step up from Incredible Hulk. Yeah, and uh, again, I had it at last, so clearly I am not a fan. You are not a fan. We go on to number 18 now. We are going to phase three. We're going to Doctor Strange is 18 overall. Wow, I'm shocked. Yeah, I think you were one of the two high water marks on that. You had number 12. I did. I'm a fan of the movie. I think it's got a great ending on how he defeats the villain. I think it's a much different kind of feel from other MCU movies. And I really think Cumberbatch is just born to play Stephen Strange. I, I'm shocked. I was a I was a pretty big fan of this movie. I, w- I will say I had it right on 18. So I was right where the average ended up on the list. I agree with you. The ending is probably the most unique ending to an MCU movie because it's not your typical, like, punchy, kicky, flippy, like, boom, explosions style to end a fight. We have the... Him using the paradox to basically wear down Dormammu, who's like constantly showing up, letting himself get killed over and over again, say Dormammu have come to bargain, just driving him insane. I love yes. that approach to it. But the problem is, like, the first, like, two-thirds of the movie, I think it drags a little bit for me. And I do not like that they whitewash the, uh, they whitewash the character Tilda Swinton, the, who plays the, 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 uh, oh, the ancient one. I think they should have been, like, a character of, like, Asian descent of active Asian descent playing that not tell us when I agree with that. Obviously that's, that's a good point. I just think that I, I just think that he is so entertaining in the role and to see his arc throughout the film, I think is a really strong one. And I know that people compare him to Tony Stark often, but I I'm a fan and I'm very excited for the next one in the series. 
Yeah, that's, a, that's another point Dan made, too, is that his intro is these, but it seems like everybody is hyped for Multiverse of Madness. Everybody's very excited to see where that goes. For sure, for sure. That's one of my more anticipated sequels coming up, or films, I should say, in the MCU. You also, you actually were not the highest on Doctor Strange, though, in the group. Martino actually had in his top ten number nine. Point out here that Martino has it number nine on the board. I had it 18, Alan 12, John Stanko at 20, Sam at 19, Dan at 16, Nick Friata at 20, Martino at number nine. The average on this is 16.3 of the on our list of the MCU movies. And I do I have Martino's take here if you are interested in this, Alan. I'm sorry, I missed that. Yes, I have Martino's take available for you if you want to hear why he has number nine. Yeah. Yeah. Martino says in this that basically he loves Cumberbatch, he's a fantastic actor, and the visual effects are fantastic, which I agree with. It, very, it just almost feels like you're going into like a Christopher Nolan movie with the special effects. Completely agree. All right. Now we're up to 18. We have our first tie to break on the board, so you and I have some fun here. We have to solve here. Okay. And by the way, I'm shocked that Doctor Strange was this low, so I'm really not knowing what to expect here on out. Actually, I'm wrong. It's not that yet. So I, we have one before the tie. I misread the sheet. So go for it. What's that? 18. Number 18 here. Actually, I can't read my sheet. So this is correct. This is the tie. I, I am right. So we have averaging 16.0. The average rating on Doc, on Doctor Strange is 16.3. We have a tie between Ant-Man, the Wasp, and Captain Marvel. So we're going to break this tie. Okay. So let's start off here. Let's start off with Captain Marvel. What do you think on Captain Marvel? I like Captain Marvel more than Ant-Man and the Wasp. I think introducing uh, Carol Danvers into the MCU is such a big moment. I think the film, you know, we talk about the ones that kind of bucked the trend. I think this one bucked the trend. It felt like a 90s period piece. You had her and Sam Jackson going buddy-buddy the entire time. I think Larson's great in the role. And I know a lot of people just don't connect with this film for whatever reason, but I really did. And I think it really stands on its own as an individual story and was very important and will be important to the future of the MCU. Whereas Ant-Man and the Wasp, as fun and entertaining as it is, shout out to Michael Pena for always being entertaining. It's just another one of those Marvel sequels. And really, I think the most important part of the movie happens in the end credits. So I would say Captain Marvel's better than Ant-Man and the Wasp, or at least more important. Yes, you were the, you were actually the high watermark on Captain Marvel. You had a 13, then a bunch of like, uh, Martino at 14. Uh, the low watermark was Nick at 22 on Captain Marvel. I had some feedback on this one, too, from... Dan, actually, I'll give you Stanko's feedback on this one. He says, it was different. It was a Wonder Woman 1984 tried to be, setting the mood with a time frame and making that a character of its own. It did not try to force it too much. Captain Marvel worked in this movie because she is discovering who she is and her immense powers aren't a crutch on Marvel anymore. Like when there's Endgame when she just got sent away, which is also a fair point. And the story cliche, we thought that Brie Larson did the best she could with a mess script. It's the op- and he has issues with Black Panther. I'll get to him in He says the opposite of Chadwick Boseman had a stronger script than the movie around him and he weighed Black Panther down, so... He's a bigger fan of Brie Larson's performance than Chadwick Boseman's. Interesting, interesting. I mean, we'll get to Black Panther, but I, I'm shocked Captain Marvel's so low because that's another one that I was just thoroughly entertained the entire time, regardless of some of the, you know, some of the weaker script points. A, how she gets her powers, I thought was a little weak, but other than that, I thought it was a fun ride. Yeah, indeed. And the other one here, Ant-Man the Wasp, it, that one, you and I are both on the same page. You had a 16 on our board. 
So that was, that was, we're the high ones on this. Actually, no, we're not the highest. I think Martin has a 15. We also have in the mix here, John Stenko has an 8 on Ant-Man and the Wasp. Sandra Rose has a 22. Dan has a wow. 19. And Nick has a 16. So it's all over the board on this one. All over the board. Again, it's you have to be into the Ant-Man storyline. And I like the Ant-Man. Yeah. I like the Ant-Man storyline. However, I just think that Ant-Man and the Wasp is is fun, but I don't think it's anything super momentous or groundbreaking. You have the extra villain in one of my favorite actors in the world, Walt Goggins. Happy to see him, but I think it's an unnecessary plot point. I like Ghost. I like Lawrence Fishburne, but none of it felt like that momentous of an occasion until the end, which everyone was waiting for anyway, because it came out between Infinity War and Endgame. So I would say that the movie itself is fun for sure. Again, we're grading on a curve. We got to the point now where I at least like every movie we're going to cover. So I just don't think it has the oomph that Captain Marvel does. Yeah, I'll give you Pete Considori's feedback. He did not send in ratings. He, again, he had not seen all of them, but he has seen this one. He said, Ant-Man the Wild is a perfect set for Endgame. I do not think it gets much credit. Paul Rudd is a perfect actor for Ant-Man. Supporting cast comments his efforts. Don't sleep on this movie. It's very important for the end of the MCU. So I think valid like story line from Pete. I will also say as far as my take on it, I think you're right. I think the fact that it comes after Infinity War does weigh the movie down quite a bit because you come in off this big epic moment and then you come here you're like this is a fun you know summer heist movie so on and so forth but when you come from that the bar getting lower to such a degree i think hurts the movie i think it would have been fair better if it was somewhere else in the calendar i think that does weigh down on people's averages yeah and and not to mention like one thing i do like about the ant-man movies is that their stories kind of justify themselves without needing the other avengers there which i often find is just like that was a big problem with thor dark world too yeah, Like the entire world's about to end, but Thor can't call a single friend to come help him out. But Ant-Man does a nice job of self-containing their stories. Like the first one's a heist movie. The second one is a, it's centered around um, Hank Pym and his like desire to get his wife's, you know, soul and body and everything back into existence from uh, what's it called where, where they go into. Oh, the quantum realm. The quantum realm. So I like that it does that, but it also, like you said, Infinity War is happening and they don't recruit Ant-Man because he's theoretically under house arrest. So it's just like, okay, whatever. I, I really think the end credits are what matters. I don't think it really lays the groundwork for anything other than that. I do think it'll lay the groundwork for Quantumania. Or is that what it's called? Yeah, Ant-Man. Yeah, Ant-Man. The, Ant-Man something of Quantumania. That's the, the basic premise. Right. So I think like, it's a fine, fun movie, but I would put Captain Marvel ahead of it. But I also had it at 16. I had Captain Marvel at 13. So I did put one quite higher than the other. I think, I think I'm going to side with you. I think we're going to put Captain Marvel ahead of Ant-Man and the Wasp because it's trying to do something different here where it's saying, what's the Marvel Cinema here? It's look like the 1990s. Like, we don't get that anywhere else. No, and it introduced you to the Skrulls, which are going to be maybe the most important possibly villainous group heading into the future of the MCU. Plus, I want to say they completely misused Michael Payne in the second movie, in my opinion, because I feel like they did not, they only gave him one really like epic, like running narration, like where he's just ranting and raving for like a solid team is telling his story. Like we only really get that once. And then he did try and give him other spots, but he realized it it didn't land. No. And there was a point I wanted to touch on when we get to the other Ant-Man about that exact thing. So 
Uh, that's a little teaser for further down the road here. Well, that won't be too long. I'll give you that much. <laughs> okay. Okay, numbers. Okay, so we have now we have Captain Marvel at 16, Ant-Man lost at 17, 15, Thor. The original Thor. Yep. I, I Here's a film that if it came out today, wouldn't stand a chance. At the time, I think it was a little fresher. I, I just think it's not that impactful. I think there's a lot of fun elements, but some of what hurts it are he learns all his lessons in one weekend. Like his complete character arc is over one weekend. It's all set in this one desert New Mexico town. Loki's great. Loki's the highlight of the film. I just think that it's a very paint-by-numbers story. And Thor it's, uh, Thor himself, Chris Hemsworth, really hasn't grown into the character yet. Yeah. So I think that Hiddleston as Loki is the highlight. But it's a story about Thor. So it's an okay movie. I had it at 18. I don't think it's that great. And I think that it's only important for the first Avengers movie. Yeah, you had it at 18. I had it was lower. You had it at 20. Because I think for me, the problem with this is I don't think Kenneth Branagh being the director of this worked. Because I think he tried hard, too hard to make Thor Shakespearean. It did not really land. No, and that's the problem with these older MCU movies. They were a little bit more... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They were trying to get names. Yeah. They were trying to get... And John Favreau obviously got the gist, even though his movies weren't great. Bron is just a fish out of water here. Yeah, 100% fish out of water because he is, one, he's doing Hamlet, he's doing Romeo and Juliet, he's not doing a superhero movie. No, he's he's very talented in his own right. It's just a little little out of place, like we said. And the, the movie's fine, it's entertaining, but the stakes are pretty low other than Loki versus Thor, and it's just really to set up the first Avengers, I think. Yeah, I was, at, I was one of the low bars on this. Dan had it 21 he said it's a slow burn to get to the point. Too much heart for a character that thrives now on being tough but funny. So it's like something you see the complete 180 he takes and it, by the time you get to Ragnarok. And I think that's the much better version of the character that we get. Absolutely. The Thor in Ragnarok and Beyond in, in Beyond is just like head and shoulders more entertaining than the other Thor. And it's no knock on Hemsworth. I think the character was just fleshed out a little bit more over the years. Absolutely. And some other ratings on this of note here. Sandra Rose was the highest. She had it at number eight on her list. Nick Freyetta had it at number nine. He sent me in some thoughts on Thor. He said, I ranked Thor as high as I did because the first time in the MCU that we saw something off-world. I thought Asgard was beautiful. I like seeing Thor transition to Earth life. I also feel it's not said nearly enough because we're also used to it at this point. But Chris Hunter is absolutely perfect for this role and does a great job. I think, he again, he's right. He did a great job while he was given, but the script they gave Hemsworth was not great. No, and again... Thor was nobody's favorite Avenger until Ragnarok. That's what I really think based on like everything I've seen online. He was like a fun, different character with godlike abilities, but now he's like a powerhouse. Yeah, he is. Next up on the list, we're going to Ant-Man. As I said, it was not going to be very long. We are made it to Ant-Man now. And right now, I think on the list here, I was higher on it than you were. I had number 12 on my personal list. You had it 17. I'll say for Ant-Man, I think the first one was much better. Like I said, I think Michael Pena in the first movie is so much more fun because they give him those moments where he's just ranting and telling these long-winded stories and they're superimposing his voice over other people's acting. It's so funny. They had the great moment where the comedic timing works with Paul Rudd being this unassuming guy. His fight with uh, Falcon and Avengers HQ is funny. They, 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 they get the humor of Ant-Man. I like it. 
Ant-Man's a fun movie. I, I think, you know, I think earlier I had said I like Ant-Man better than Ant-Man and the Wasp, and then I looked at my list, and I said I liked Ant-Man more than Ant-Man and the Wasp, even though I have them, you know, I literally have them 17 and 16, so it's 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 within one spot. The The rants you're talking about, the Michael Pena monologues, are very Edgar Wright. Yeah. And we talk about how the earlier films had these directors and they didn't feel right. Edgar Wright's later on in the MCU and it felt right. So the fact that he was bounced because of creative differences and this like wishy-washy thing stunk because I think that movie was tailor-made for him and his designs and that Michael Pena bit is clearly influenced by Edgar Wright and that's what makes the Ant-Man movie so redeeming. It's those kind of moments. There's just not enough of them. Ant-Man 1 is a very forgettable cardboard villain and Honestly, the thing that made me most excited was a glorified cameo by Thomas the Tank Engine. <laughs> That's true. I will say you you were one of the lower ones on. Actually, the lowest is Sandra. She had a 21. Because she had both, I think that one, 21, Ant-Man the Wasp, 22. She was not a big fan of either movie. So I actually asked her about it. I said, you know, I love Paul Rudd. I have met him, and he's like the coolest. I literally couldn't even sit through any of the movies. I tried my best. It never piqued my interest. That's fair. I mean, it's a very specific tone that the other films don't have. And if you're not into the Paul Rudd, almost Judd Apatow adjacent, even more so than Edgar Wright, then you're not going to be a huge fan. Yeah, and Dan also sort of there. I really enjoy Paul Rudd, but it's necessary to see the Ant-Man movie to understand his place. It's a critical role in Endgame. That's about it. So it's one of those things like, we don't need it. It's like, it's fun, but you don't need it. Yeah, and... You know, I think it's another one of those, here's another guy who got a bad rap, but he's a good guy, but he's still facing the government. And it's just like, okay, isn't that like every Avenger at some point where the government doesn't want them to help, they don't like them, there's a misunderstanding. So it's a lot of retreading of some of the subplots. Yeah, and would you like to take a guess who was the highest on Ant-Man of, of the panel? John Stanko. Correct, number six. His top ten is a doozy for everyone else. Yeah, like his is spread throughout the list, which is pretty interesting. Cause like he, it's a good value having Stanko on the board. Cause he does shake things up. Oh, for sure, for sure. And he has rationale. It's not just trying to be hip or different. He has his reasons. He does. Number 14 on the list now. We are getting closer to the top half. Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 2 at number 14. So I actually was one off this. I had it at 15. You had it at 11. John Stanko was the lowest. He had this at 22. Wow. Yeah. All right, so here's my take on Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. It's one of the last films I've seen in the MCU run, even though chronologically it came out beforehand. It was one of the last ones I got to, and I was always told it's not that important. You don't need to see it. It's like it's got a long, drawn-out subplot with Kurt Russell, and it's just not that, it's not that important. But when I saw it, Darn it, if I wasn't entertained the entire runtime. Like, the Drax character, which I know some people think it was, like, a little over the top and a little too many jokes. I think there was only one joke I didn't laugh at. Everything else hit for me. I love Mantis. I love the dynamic of the Guardians. I just think they're a rock star group. I, I like this one better than Guardians 1. And I just like the soundtrack. I'll even argue that Guardian Soundtrack Volume 2 was better than Guardian Soundtrack Volume 1, which would get me a lot of heat in some circles. But 
I am fully on board. Yeah, the Kurt Russell stuff's a little much, and it's another one of those dumb Marvel plots where here you have a villain who could literally destroy the universe in hours, and only the Guardians are there to stop him. Like, it's it's a little much. It's a little bit of suspension of disbelief, but take that out and everything else I'm a huge fan of, especially the music and the Michael Rooker performance. Yeah, Michael Rooker is the reason why I don't have it lower than I do because I love his performance. I do think they get bogged down and they're trying too hard to copy what worked in one. And I think they do overdo Baby Groot a little bit too much, in my opinion. That's fine. That's fair. I, I, I think that it's a fun movie. And sometimes with the MCU, that's all I require. Yeah, that is. And to reset here, some of the ratings on the board here, I'll give you Nick Frietta here had the Guardians 2 at number 18 on his list. He said the second one just didn't land for me. Felt very forced to me and seemed like the entire film tried to do success of the first one. Didn't provide anything that the first one didn't. Dan Martin was the high at number 8. What fun, love me some baby Groot. And I have John Stanko's feedback here if you like this. So Guardians of the Galaxy 2 was horrendous in every sense of the word. Ego is such a stupid villain. I just also did not not also just did not find the movie that funny at all. I did not love the first Guardians of the Galaxy, and both we suffer from lackluster closing sequences. A fact of the matter is I don't love the character. I didn't I don't die for baby Groot. Rocket Raccoon is the best character of the bunch. Nelly of Memory is correct. It's more was it more of a sequel? She's the biggest waste of space in the entire Marvel universe. I find that harsh, but that's fine. I Again, this was a film that had such a bad rap to me before I went in that I'm not shocked people feel this way. Yeah, it was very polarizing. It was like a wide, wide range. Yeah. The only thing I would say is the runtime's a little drawn out. Oh, yeah, it is, because they're trying to try and, you know, take advantage of this whole, like, crazy feel of this, so. Yeah, and the uh, storyline of the two dads and, like, you know, the biological versus the who raised him kind of thing. Look, I, I, I get it. It's not perfect. I was just highly entertained throughout. Yeah, it's fun. I will say that. All right, next up for, on the list here, number 13, just outside the top half, our first Avengers movie, Avengers Age of Ultron. I can't say I'm surprised that it's the first one off the board. No, and it's one that is, here's the best way I think to put it. You watch it, you take it in, and you just forget about it, and it doesn't really sit that well. Yeah. Like, I think it has some good elements. I'm not the biggest fan, fan of Ultron as a villain, but I know some people love Ultron. But it's just like, I think really the best part of this entire movie is the hammer lift scene at the party. Yeah. And then everything else, even Quicksilver's death, which comes back to play in WandaVision. But it's just like, it's just like whatever. I feel like they retreaded a lot of stuff from the first Avengers movie. You had another big circular fight scene with all the Avengers taking out nameless enemies. And, you know... I'm not a huge fan of this movie at all. I had it at 19. Yeah, you were the lowest on the board. You had it at 19. I had it at 14. I think for me, it's it's the it's the worst villain of the MCU mo- of the Avengers movies. It is the worst, I think, in terms of like getting the plot points together. I feel like we spend a long time trying to get to our big fight at the end, and I do think getting Elizabeth Olsen introduced is fun, but like having stuff like it just didn't really all click. It felt like it's just was a product that you could see phase two, a lot of the movies in phase two were not great. And it sort of was the summation of like, it's the phase two has the worst Iron Man movie, the worst Thor movie, the worst Avengers movie. Yeah. It's, it's look, I, I, I have it higher on my list than, well, no, that's not true. 
I, I just think, like we said, it's, it's a little bit of a retread. I don't think there's that much to take away from it. And I think that it's pretty forgettable when it's all said and done. And I know that you would get introduced to some major characters like Vision and, and Wanda, and there's the fun um, cameo. He has a bigger part in Black Panther. Gollum. Yeah, uh, What's his name? Uh, uh, I think like, Ulysses Cloth. He shows up, and that's how you realize how he loses his hand, I think. So yep. there's some fun scenes, but I'm just not a fan of a CGI villain ever. Yeah. And it just didn't land for me. Nothing against Spader. Spader acted the hell out of it, but he, didn't, he was not giving much. Not giving much, and literally a faceless villain. He has a computerized, like almost like vision face. Like, it just wasn't for me. I don't know how else to articulate it. Yeah, there were two people who had inside their top 10. Sam had number nine, and Dan had number six. Dan was a big Elizabeth Olsen fan and thought the theme of like, what if your AI turned against you is perfect for the time it came out, which is 2015. And Sam said it was very sentimental because like, was one of the last ones she saw in, like, in college with her friends. And like, she also a big Elizabeth Olsen fan. So Elizabeth Olsen pulling it up a little bit. Elizabeth Olsen's great. Yeah. And so we're at, what number are we at? This is 13. Just to cut you off, around 13 is where I would put the two series that have come out so far. Yeah, Falcon and the Winter Soldier and WandaVision. Yeah, yeah, we'll get we'll we'll get to why at the end of the podcast. I have my my own thoughts on that, but we'll mention mention this here. I'll give catch up on some averages here on the scores. Thor was fifteen point one on the chart. Ant Man was fourteen point four, fourteen even for Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two, and thirteen point four for Avengers: Age of Ultron. Okay, now we're in the top twelve. Number twelve. With an average of 11, Spider-Man Far From Home. So what's funny is that I'm kind of thrown off now because it's around where I had it. I had it at number 10. Yeah. Because there's so many movies that I'm just like, where are they going to land? I'm shocked this is here. Well, to be fair to this one, this is one that was only based off of six ratings. Martino is not able to track down either Spider-Man movie, so they are not included in his list. So it's out of six, and it got a... It also has one where Sam DeRosa has not finished the movie, so it's lower than her rankings. She said, she admittedly said, if, it, if I had finished, it would be probably much higher, but I did not get to finish it yet. Mm, okay, so there's a little asterisk. Next there's time. an asterisk. It's probably going to be higher if we do a future version of this list. Yeah, I think this is the single most important end credit scene in MCU history, obvious for obvious reasons, because it was the finale of Phase 3, it the hype of J. Jonah Jameson coming out at the end, the scroll reveal that Sam Jackson's kind of using them as like foot soldiers to do his dirty work so he doesn't need to get busy all the time. There's so much here. The Gyllenhaal villain of Mysterio is fantastic, even though his motivations aren't necessarily the best. I'm sick of a disgruntled Stark employee as much as the next guy. Yeah. But damn it, if Gyllenhaal's just not so entertaining with everything he does in life... So I'm in. I thought the CGI was superb in this film. It was quite a sight, and I love Tom Holland and the crew behind him. I'm a huge fan of the Spider-Verse, pun intended, and I am so excited for No Way Home. I can't even tell you. I'm just a big fan of this grouping of movies. I do think it's number 10 for me. Yeah. I don't think it's as strong as Homecoming, but I'm a fan of this movie and it is really great. And we talked about how I didn't like some of the set pieces in some of the other films. I love the giant set pieces in, in Europe here in this film. 
Yeah, I have it number 10, too. I think the thing that's fun about this one is the fact that, like, even though Mysterio being a Star Stark employee is disappointing, I like that they did with his power set, like the fact that he was able to use the now tech to create the illusions, which is very iconic. It's comic book version of the character. I think it's also, they had a very tough act to follow because they follow the first movie following Endgame where we had the emotional weight of, like, all of this stuff just happened and you have all these things basically dropped on our heads and they did a good job just grounding it in Spider-Man and he did a good job, Tom Holland, acting this out. And I think it's a good movie. I think the Spider-Man, they seem to get it and they get the content of the character and they act him out very well. And I will point out here, number four on John Sanko's list, Spider-Man Far From Home. I'm a fan of the movie. Yeah. I, we're getting to a spot in the list now where anything I have, you know, I have it in my top 10. I love the top 10 movies. Every movie that's in my top 10, I love. So I'm, I'm in, in. Okay. Now we're going to our last one that's outside the top 10. We're going back to phase one. Captain America, the first Avenger, checks in at number 11 overall with an average of 10.1. So I know I you're not happy about this. Five. I have it at number five, but I get it because there's some people who just don't connect with this movie. And I'll, I'll say it now because I teased it earlier. My favorite Avenger is Captain America. Yeah. So the origin story for me is something I really enjoyed. I thought it was just such a cool movie. Like what I remember most, because this is one of the ones I haven't seen in a while, but what I remember most is just being in awe of, you know, I just the whole feel of it. The 1940s, the, the Bucky character back then, I was a big fan of. And like, just like so much about the Captain America universe. I love, love, love. So I'm in on the movie. Stanley Tucci, Red Skulls, whatever, take him or leave him. But he's also not the worst MCU villain. I just like a lot. And I don't mind the goofy CGI Chris Evans on the skinny body because I think it's fine. Like we're literally watching a superhero movie it's better than what the Irishman did. So <laughs> I, I'm in. I love this movie. Top five for me. You love Skinny Steve. I wouldn't say that. I'm just saying it didn't bother me as yeah. much. Yeah, I think you were one of the high water marks. So you and Sam had it at five. I had it at 13 because I think my issue with it is more the fact that, like, it's a period piece. Like, it literally is. Like, I don't f I think this is one I give them credit for attempting because this is early in their run. I think Captain Marvel does a better job as a period piece than this one does. Because I think they're wait they just get a little too bogged down in oh, this is about the world world uh, how Captain America fares in World War II as opposed to exploring more of Captain America himself. I think that's a problem I have with it. Yes, and you know, I, I know we mentioned earlier some of the MCU shows I have and haven't seen. And Agent Carter seems to be one that factors into the MCU more than some of some others. And yep. we get a lot of Peggy in this movie. So I was a fan of hers as well. Yeah, she's great in this movie. The low on this movie was John Stango had it at 18. Did he give a reason? No, I did not ask for feedback on that one. That's fine. Yeah. So that is number 11. Number 10 now. We actually are going to break a second tie here for ninth place. So we have two, two films. Very different films. This is going to be the challenge. Option A, Captain America Civil War. Option B, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 1. So this is this is gonna be fun. I say let's start with Guardians. So I know you were lower on Guardians than I am. So why do you feel a little down on Guardians? I just think that it's the fourth best Guardians movie because I think you know they play such a major role in the two big Infinity War and Endgame. In fact, 
uh, Zoe Saldana is pretty much the protagonist of Infinity War. Yeah. I just think like this Guardians movie is it's a little overhyped. I think it's pretty formulaic. You know, we only get Thanos for five seconds. I think it's another bad villain. It's just like um, it's fine. It's not as you know, all the characters in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two are drawn out more. I, I just think this first one's a nice attempt. I, I, it's a, it's definitely something that sparked something creative within the the superhero movie gimmick. I know the Guardians themselves weren't huge before this. It's just not my favorite. I'm not a huge fan of this movie. I I do enjoy watching it, but it's not it's not my cup of tea all the time the way it is some other people's. And I just find its stakes irrelevant because by Infinity War, the entire point of the first movie is wiped out. They save the city that has been destructed off camera, off screen with just a mention. I just feel like it just falls by the wayside in some ways. Yeah, that's, that's a fair point. I have it number eight because this is something like I when this, I think this succeed expectations so much from when you heard it. When they said, oh, Guardians of the Galaxy, like, really? That's where we're going next? Like, we haven't, like, these five round characters don't see much of. And then it was just such a blast. The soundtrack was great. It's, it was a good way. And they had a tough task. You're introducing five separate characters in one movie and trying to make them become a team. I think they did a good job with that. Nick Fry was the high on the board. He had number two on his list. And he basically said, Guardians of the Galaxy was my, one of my favorite movies ever. It reminded me of a Star Wars-type film in the MCU. I love watching the team come together and love the cast. I think they nailed the cast on this one. It was a fantastic assembly of a cast. Again, it's nitpicking. It's a good movie. Like, yeah. There's no doubt about it. It is highly entertaining for two hours. Nice, quick runtime for an MCU movie. And I, I love the main crew, and that includes Nebula. And, you know, it's just, it's good. It's just not my favorite. So it, it, it's... I'd love to hear how you compare it to Civil War. Yeah, Civil War we can go to now on May. Like these, these two, I literally have them right next to each other on the list. I had uh, Guardians eight, I had Civil War nine. So it really is like basically like splitting hairs of these two. And I think I asked Martina about this one. He had it up. And I think where, let me see where he ranked it. He had it at number two on his list. So he says one of my favorites in general. Probably one of the more emotional films. Bring out questions on how to grieve and who to blame. Whether or not people should be judged jury executioner. Tony Wright to hate Bucky wasn't his fault. His anger was misdirected and that concept is relevant in real life. I like the message sense. That's Martino's take on it. I think, and then Dan has a point that I relate to. I enjoy seeing the fight each other, but we knew no one's going to get seriously hurt. It's like watching your best friends wrestle over the last beer. <laughs> I think what it accomplished was A, that cameo with Tom Holland being introduced to Spider-Man is one of the better scenes in the MCU history. You introduce so many elements to the film. However, I will say that I have it at number seven, but I could be swayed on it to go down a little bit because I wanted more from it. While I think it's a very good, high-quality film, the Zemo motivations and how he goes about doing everything are just so out of left field, and they jump the shark quite a bit. And while I'm willing to suspend disbelief, obviously... You got to not insult my intelligence with how the characters get to certain places. And I think the Zemo stuff was a huge stretch. So I'm willing to listen. I think there's some really nice emotional beats, Peggy's funeral. You know, there's some really nice moments, but it's not, you know, I might on retrospect, knock it down a few notches. So I'm cool with Guardians going ahead of it, if that's what you feel. I feel it should for one reason. I think this film is mistitled because I do not think it's a good Captain America movie. 
if you title this Avengers Civil War, it's A+. It's like top-notch, you gay, but you're trying to sell that this is the sequel to Winter Soldier, and that this is the next beaten Cap story. It just feels like it's just too many other guys showing up, and, you know, Iron Man is a huge arc in this movie. You could say, is this not Iron Man 4 in some aspects of it? I think, for me, if it was, in fact, we're, I think that we spend not enough time on Cap in Cap Zone movie. I think that's why I would put Guardians ahead of it. 100%. And I am the world's biggest Bucky fan. I <laughs> love that character. He is in my top three of all-time MCU characters. But in this movie, he's almost like, it's almost like a Schwarzenegger, like the T2 protecting John Connor and Bucky's John Connor when Bucky should be T2. Yeah. And I do like the Black Panther in this movie. I think the introduction to Chadwick in this movie and some of Black Panther's scenes are really exciting. The highway chase is very exciting. I do think it's a very good movie. It is top 10 for sure, but I'm willing to, you know, take my own views out of it to put Guardians ahead if you're willing to make that call. I think we should make that call. I'm fine with that. Yeah, so we're putting Guardians at number number nine, Captain America Civil War at number 10. Some other notes on this one. San Rosa had... had, uh, Guardians at number four overall, so and Martino had number six, so four reigns inside the top ten for this one. And in terms of Guardians of the Galaxy, in terms of Civil War, Dan was the lowest at number seventeen. There was a two, an eight, your seven, my nine, and then two eleven. So it's pretty, it's a decent spread. Yeah, and I'm fine with how we settled on that because Civil War has always been bittersweet to me because I wanted it to be great. Yeah. I really did, but it just never quite got there. Again, great movie, but I'm saying in like my personal opinion and taste. All right. Number eight. This one sneaks just ahead of these two at 9.1 rating overall. Black Panther, which you had it right on the nose. You had number eight, which is where it lands. Yeah, I know some people consider it their favorite MCU movie. I'm not quite there. I think for a big action movie, there's not enough. There's yeah. just not enough. The best fight scene is Killmonger and uh, T'Challa on the waterfall for the dominance, for the power. That's a great scene. Ulysses and Killmonger have some great scenes together. Killmonger is a top three MCU villain. I have him at number three on my villain rankings, which you didn't ask me to make, but I did. <laughs> but Killmonger is fantastic, and Michael B. Jordan is the star of this film. I know... No disrespect to Chadwick Boseman, but this is Michael B. Jordan's star-making villain performance as a bad guy in movies, and he is fantastic. The movie has, you know, Suri is one of my favorite MCU characters. There's just, is it Suri? Shuri. Shuri. Let me say that again. Yeah. Shuri is one of my favorite MCU characters. She's great. There's a lot to love. I'm you had mentioned before that John Stanko's not as high on Bozeman. I like Bozeman here, and I think the second time I kind of revisited the film, I liked him even more. I uh I like this movie a lot. I just don't think it holds up in terms of the action and the end fight scene's a little underwhelming, especially because the same two characters had a better fight scene earlier in the movie. Yeah, I think in terms of this movie, like I was the high bar bar and I had number three on my list. Sam also had number three. I think a thing I think that I think I reflect on it more is that it was such a big cultural touchstone when this movie came out because Black Panther transcended the MCU and became like a big movie, like nationally, internationally, in terms of like 
a movie that like depicted like black culture, which is something we didn't really get, especially in a superhero movie. I thought that had some weight. You got great performances throughout. I'll give John Stanko's criticism to the movie here because he is the lowest on it at number 16. And what he said to me is, this movie is fine. My hot take is that Chadwick Boseman brought the movie down from what it could have been. That's part of Black Panther, Michael B. Jordan, and Andy Serkis. He goes on to say T'Challa is too good. It's been a problem with the Chadwick Boseman performance that I've seen. He always plays the godlike mentor good guy rather than a complicated figure that is until Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. There's no denying the entire movie looks great, but the main character is spinning the entire movie is like a dull blade. Nothing is spinning evenly. It's a wobbly ride. So that's his take on Black Panther. A little harsh in my opinion, but I that's how he feels. Like you can't yep. discredit how someone feels. I do think that when a villain's motivations can be justified if they respond to a hero's point of view, that's really great. And Killmonger, although misguided in his efforts, you got you you know, he's got some valid points. And I think if we were ranking the importance of the MCU, this is number one. Like important films in the MCU. Important to the general world, not just like, yes. yeah. Not in terms of the story within the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I'm saying, like you said, culturally, society, like this is number one. Yeah, I also think it'll be interesting to see where they go from here. Obviously, R.I.P. at Chadwick Bowes, he passed away last August. And Black Panther, like they said, they're not recasting the character, which is the right move. So I'm curious to see what that looks like when Black Panther 2 comes out. I think it's next year. So let's see what direction they go with it. Wakanda forever. Yeah, Wakanda forever. Now we're up to number six, seven. We have to break our final tie of the rankings here. So this is going to be a doozy because I feel like this one could be, we have to build debate on this one. Okay. We have to break a tie between Avengers Endgame and Spider-Man Homecoming. Okay. I'm befuddled because I had these Homecoming at three and Endgame at two. I am shocked that they did not make it into the top five. Homecoming, okay. Maybe some people don't like Spider-Man as much. But Endgame, wow, I'm, I'm shocked. Yeah. You know, I, I, before we debate it, I want to hear what people were saying. All right, so let's start with Endgame, and I'll give you I'll give you Sam the Rose's criticism. She was the lowest on it, number 15 on her board. And she said, Endgame with Endgame is something I've come to terms with. As much as as disappointing as it was watching the first time, it's an okay movie. I feel like it's important because the final movie of Phase 3 went on to Turning Point for the Falcon, Scarlet Witch, Bucky Barnes. I still hate that type of everything with a bow. A new annoyance I've found is that I hate the Hulk in Endgame. He's no longer the Hulk. I was confused. I understand it was Aaliyah, the banner, finally taming the beast, making the Hulk who he is. But I agree with Valkyrie, and she says she liked him either as a Hulk or as a banner, but not the in-between. So she is a big hater on Smart Hulk. I thought Hulk was better in Endgame than he was in Infinity War. Yeah. Well, he so, wasn't, wasn't really in Infinity War. It was really bad, just Bruce Banner the entire movie. Right, yeah. right. Um, I, I'm fine. I, I'd rather him be big and green. I guess that's just the bottom line when it comes to Hulk. But, okay. Okay. I'm also low, and so I have his number 11. I had just outside my top 10, because I feel like it's too bloated. I think it's just, it, as a movie, it makes no sense, because they do a terrible job explaining a time travel to you. Is it fun? Yes, but as a story, it's such a hot mess. Well, that's why the Ant-Man first movie is important. The uh, Actually, both of them, right? Based on when they yep. came out. To understand the quantum realm and how to like travel through time. Look, it's a little loosey-goosey, sure. It's a little, like, wishy-washy in terms of how anything happens. I've seen the movie three times now, and I still can't fully explain it to you, so maybe that's a <laughs> knock on me. But I get it. I just think, like, the end fight scene to take Thanos down is worth the price of admission all in itself. And my goodness, if the, the, the roar of the crowd could have been any higher when, you know... You see T'Challa and Falcon and all these people, Doctor Strange, Spidey, reemerge 
I mean, that was some of the most hype motions I've ever felt in a theater. And I hadn't even seen all the buildup to it. So I know there's some questionable plot holes, but hey, we wouldn't have a Loki series if not for uh, Endgame. So I'm fine with that. I love the movie. Yeah, so Endgame, to set up the ratings here, there were basically two sets of groupings here. The people had in the top five, which is you at two is the high. Dan had it at four. Nick had it at five. Martino had it at four. Then the lower half of the group, which was me at 11, Stanko at 10, Sam at 15. So that, so basically a 50-50 split on the panel in terms of how to rate this movie. Okay, so let's let's hear what Homecoming's got to offer in the people's eyes. Spider-Man Homecoming. So this is an interesting one here. So I had this number seven. You had it at three. Stanko has it at two. Sam at seven. And then Dan 13, Nick at 12. And then Martin, obviously, he's not seen. So again, this is a rating out of six. So okay. this is one. Those two ratings probably drag it down a bit. Nick has a Spider-Man Homecoming at 12. But nothing against the film. I really enjoy both Spider-Man and MCU movies. And Kyle's a great Spider-Man. I think it just doesn't stack up for the ones I have above it. Simple as that. No, it's just the film. Just something I liked everything else a little bit more. And Dan says I, he enjoyed the scene seeing Peter Parker, Michael Keaton, very much. That's pretty much the best part of the film for him. This movie's fantastic. I, I, you know, I love this movie. I think it is so good. You start off post-Civil War where Spidey really wants to play a part in the group. He wants to feel like his powers mean something and they're helping. So the whole movie is him trying to, like, figure out where he can help and... I love that the Vulture, Michael Keaton's fantastic character and performance, are, like Ant-Man, a very New York-centric, localized villain who doesn't need all the bells and whistles of the Avengers. But I think Vulture is the fourth best MCU villain. I think he's another one who has good intentions or misguided good intentions. You know, he wants the best for his crew, his family. He just knows that in today's society, he needs to get what he can, any way he can. And the scene where you find out that Keaton is the dad to Petey's prom date and they drive in the car, I did not see that coming. I thought that was one of the more brilliant film scenes in all of the MCU. Real tension, real acting, the movie as a whole Tony Stark's in it, the right amount. I just thought this movie was a slam dunk. I love this movie too. I mean, said Tony Stark, I think is a great, a great arc here, being the mentor to Peter Parker, and they do a good job. They don't overload you with Tony Stark, where he shows up a couple of times. He's not this constantly in Peter's life. He he has his own things. He's got going on, so he's not just showing up. Like, he pops out in key moments to give advice. This is really Peter's story. We see him try and solve this problem on his own, which I liked. He didn't need Tony Stark to bail him out. I like that. I liked his relationship with his friends. I mean, Ned is still one of my favorite characters in the MCU of all time because, like, we're all Neds. Yeah, love Ned. And again, this is a movie where, like you said, Tony was, his presence was felt, but it wasn't distracting. Yeah. And to give Happy a big role in a series again, perfect. He And we didn't mention it in Far From Home. John Favreau is one of the best parts of Far From Home. Oh, he is. So I'm, I'm a big fan of Homecoming. I'm personally going to put it ahead of Endgame, which I have no problem with, even though I have it in my rankings, but taking everyone's points into consideration, I will gladly put Homecoming ahead of Endgame. I will do the same. I think we are in agreement on that. We'll put we'll put Homecoming ahead of Endgame. So it's not a slight either movie. This is, again, splitting hairs, these two at this point. Yeah, and I'm just such a fan of Homecoming that I want it to get as much respect as it deserves. Yeah, so again, Homecoming is six, Endgame is seven, are into our top five, so cream of the crop. 
Yeah, and we know what those movies will be. So yeah. I'm interested to see how they play out. Number five, the original Iron Man. Wow, there's a movie that we haven't listed yet that I am shocked is in the top five. Iron Man's not it. I had Iron Man at number nine. I think it's a perfect, perfect startup to the MCU franchise. And I know at the time they hadn't really known what the MCU would be, but it doesn't matter. The movie holds up. Tony Stark's phenomenal. Great villain, even though he's disgruntled Stark employee and Jeff Bridges. Shout out to Jeff Bridges, the first MCU villain. And I just think this is a really good film, a great origin story. And the fact that Iron Man kind of bookends phases one through three, even though, you know, Far From Home doesn't have him. This he's, is Tony Stark's this is Tony Stark's story. Yeah. And what a great beginning. Well, Spider Man, I mean, he is kind of in Fire Home. His presence lurks over that entire film, so for sure, for sure. And I do think, obviously, this is the for me. I gotta give respect for being the one that kicks this whole thing off. Plus, it's a great movie. It's on right, and like the, people don't re- forget the time that why was there any big chance giving RDJ that role? Because that, at that point of time, like he had a lot of drug issues, alcohol issues in his career, and like this is probably like the last big role he's gonna get if he didn't nail it. And he did, and he was so fun as Tony Stark. And I've got. P has a great line on this. Said Iron Man's a perfect standalone intro movie of the MCU for the casual fan who wants to get into the franchise. Robert Downey Jr.'s dry sense of humor as the already badass character that is Iron Man. Tony Stark as Iron Man is one of the best cast. Uh, sorry, R.D. Robert Downey Jr. as Tony Stark is one of the best casting decisions in cinema history. So I'm fine with this being as high as it is. Yeah. Plus, like, I think it's a lot of fun when you have like I love Jeff Ray's Justin Hammer as a. Uh, Oh, that is staying. Yeah, and I love the one scene where he they're trying to build their own Iron Man suit, and he gets mad, and he's screaming at the guy, and he's off. He's like, Tony Stark built this in the desert with a box of scraps. Like, why can't we do this with our technology? And isn't that guy one of the people, the disgruntled employees in Far From Home? Yes, they do bring him back. It's so funny. Like, I do love the MCU retconning things and, like, sort of, like, introducing things because in case – I don't know if you forgot, the guy who plays Spider-Man's teacher – was the lab assistant in the Incredible Hulk, and they recognized it. That's the same guy. So I thought it was hilarious. Love that. Love those little touches. And they don't make a huge deal of it, so it's like funny Easter eggs for us. Yeah, it is very funny. And I do think it makes a lot of sense to give some ratings here. You had it number nine. I had number six. And then across the board, five from Stanko, six from Sam, five from Dan, six from Nick, seven from Martino. So very even average there. Sounds good. All right. Number four. And one that I was very high on too, Captain America: The Winter Soldier. Uh, again, if uh, the fact that uh, all right, Winter Soldier is phenomenal. I think it, it's number four, but one through four for me could have been one. Yeah, that's how strongly I feel. Winter Soldier, Bucky Barnes, unbelievable. Just what a character! You know the the elevator scene which they revisit in Endgame is so good. Black Widow, Falcon. Cap. This is the first movie where Cap kind of discovers modern day. You got the fish out of water the same way you did Thor, but more effective here, I think. I'm a huge fan of this movie. Probably probably the best film in the MCU. I think in terms of film, it's right there. I think it's right below Black Panther in my opinion. It's phenomenal. Yeah, I think, again, they take they give you a political thriller and a superhero movie, which I think is a lot of fun. You get, like, a lot of like touchy subjects that relates to the modern world, especially when you have the debating Cap and Fury about like 
how like how is this freedom when you're not really free in terms of like the spot the shield spying on the people they think are threats to them you have all these great things and then the perfect like hydra reveal all these great fights the elevator scene the emotional shot with bucky and cap at the end of the movie it's a lot of, of like just chef's kiss yeah it's it's really good and Big ups to Robert Redford being yep. in the movie. Like, that is some grade A Hollywood yeah. legend right yeah. there. Yeah, it's got a five from me, a four from you, three threes from Dan, Nick, and Martino. Josh Decker had it 12, Sam had it 10. So that is why he's low at where it is in here. Unbelievable. The fact that nobody had it at one is a little surprising. And, yeah. And that's, you know, I am also to blame. So I get it. Yeah, indeed. We are down to our final three movies. This is where all the ones are. They are all in these three movies. So up next here, number three, the original Avengers. And that had to be three because I brought it down. <laughs> yes, you did. I, I had it at 15. And I just think that, okay, so what hurt it for me is the fact that the Avengers themselves got away with destroying a city. And Spider-Man, Homecoming, the Netflix series, they address it more than the Avengers storylines ever did. Yeah. I think that Loki's phenomenal, but so many faceless CGI henchmen and villains. Also, the fact that this movie has that base, what is it, five or six Avengers, yeah. when the rest of them have so many more, it just it doesn't feel as complete as some of the others. It just doesn't sit super well with me. Also, Joss Whedon's style of filmmaking, I don't think holds up compared to some of the other big Marvel movies that the Russo brothers provided us and stuff. So it's just not my bag. I may have to revisit it, but uh, f- not my favorite, man. I just not a huge fan, but I, I I'd love to hear what people thought. Yeah. So I had his number two on my list. Yeah. Cause I like, this is something I think that Dan and Pete both iterated. And I think is the point I will mention here is that there's something we had not ever seen before a movie of this scale where, you're bringing all these different characters and all these different movie franchises together into one thing, and that's not easy to pull off because you have all these separate threads. You pick, do you pick the right villain? Do you give everybody the right amount of screen time? Do you make sure? And this is something where the, I mean, Jeremy Renner's not happy because Hawkeye disappears for half the movie with a mindless henchman of Loki, but they do such a good job bringing together. You got great quips, you have great drama between them because this is not a group that's going to easily work together. They sell it so well, and. This succeeding is why we have so much more happening because if this is a bomb, the whole thing goes away. Sure. And again, Loki, who I think is the second best Marvel villain of all time. It's funny, like all of Loki's movies that he's like a prominent figure and I have low on my list, yet I love him so much. But maybe, and answer me what you think about this. If I had seen it when it came out live, would I have a different interpretation as opposed to seeing it later on out of order? Yes, all right, so maybe that's the problem for me. Maybe yeah. that's my missing link with this film. I think it's probably because you saw it later. And you're like, oh, this is a, like that's only six of them. We have like I see movies with like tw- fifteen heroes in it. Yeah, I had probably already met some. Like I probably already met the Guardians. Like, so I I had thought maybe that it, maybe I just saw it at the wrong time. And if I revisited it, it would be hard to place myself in the context of when did it come out? 2011? 2012. 2012, it would be hard to place myself there, but I would need to rewatch it to get a kind of new feel for it. Yeah, so to reset the ratings here, a couple of these. So Iron Man was 6.3 overall. Cap Winter Soldier was 5.7. This is a 5.3. I added two. You added 15 as the low man. 
Stanko has it number three. Sam and Dan both number one. Nick number seven. Martino number eight. So that is why it is, this is where it is. We only have two left on the countdown. Yeah, and we know what they are. And I, I would be shocked if it's not what I think it is going to be. At number two. So to draw the suspense here, we have the only two we have left here are Thor Ragnarok and Avengers Infinity War. Number two, with an average of five even, Avengers Infinity War. Oh my goodness. This is one that you and I both had number one. It's it's an amazing movie. It is so gut-wrenching. It's so powerful. Even though everyone with a brain knew the finish wouldn't stick there's enough here that as a standalone movie it is the most emotional it's a gut punch the acting's incredible the action is incredible the from beginning to end this just feels like a heavy dark story and it's such a contrast the guardians it's the best guardians movie in my opinion it's just so strong. It's so good. And Josh Brolin does not get enough credit for his performance as Thanos. This movie's fantastic. I had it number one, and that was easy yeah. for me to decide I want to put this at number one. Yeah, this was number one with a bullet for me because this is something where they do the inverse of what they've done for every other movie where in every other MC movie, we're following a hero, whether it's where Iron Man is our star or Captain America is our star. This one, the star was Thanos. Thanos was the hero of this movie. He was the one going on the quest to collect the Infinity Stones, to do what he felt he had to do, to bring store balance to the universe and save it from basically eating itself. And Josh Brolin's acting in this movie is so good that you end up like sort of rooting for him and say, you know what, I hope he can pull this off and see if he can actually get this job done. Wow, I never felt like that. I was always you're, gonna, you're, him, you're sympathetic to him at the least. I guess. I mean, this is a guy who's going to destroy half the universe's population on a whim because he feels he needs to play God. But so strong. Funny that you call him the hero. That's very interesting. Well, very he, interesting. Well, you look at it, he's the central thread line of all these movies because you have th- three separate like groups of heroes, basically. You have Tony going off into space for one set of them. You have the Guardians quest with Thor, and you have the Cap group based on Earth, where he's the central threat to all of them. One of the most badass movie moments is when Thor, Rocket, and Groot show up in Wakanda yeah. out of the space beam after he gets the uh, axe. I think this is the best MCU movie, personally. Uh, one through four for me, you know, I can make a case for all of them, but this is my favorite MCU movie. It also gives us one of the greatest like MCU burns ever. I'm going to play this. I actually did the only clip I pulled from an MCU movie for this. So this is way back at the beginning of the movie when Ebony Maw and the other one of his henchmen show up in Trump and you are looking for Doctor Strange. Tony Stark shows up. We get this great gem. So play this real quick. I'm sorry, Earth is closed today. You better pack it up and get out of here. Stonekeeper, does this chattering animal speak for you? Certainly not. I speak for myself. I'm trespassing in this city and on this planet. He needs to get lost, Squidward. He exhausts me. I mean, only Tony Stark gave me the Get Lost Squidward reference. Yes, and he also has a problem with Spidey doing pop culture references. Very hypocritical. Uh, great movie. I'm, I'm totally in on it. And number one, surprisingly, it was one I did not expect to be here, with an average rating of 3.0, clears by two whole points. Thor Ragnarok. 
look, it's a different feel from the rest. I understand why it's at number one. People adore this movie. It's comedic. It's probably the funniest MCU movie. I just, I had it at number six. I'm a big fan of it. I think some of the Hella stuff is a little long in the tooth, a little long-winded, but you can't deny that all of the space stuff, the Jeff Goldblum stuff, the Hulk stuff, you know, Tessa Thompson's new, newly introduced character in this movie. And this is Thor's best performance. You have a lot of fun Loki stuff. So this is my highest rated Loki movie. Just, it's a really good movie. And I can't fault people for liking it the most. It's the flashiest. It's the most energetic movie. There's a lot of great music and Taika Waititi. So like, I can't fault that. And Jeff Goldblum alone is worth it being in the top 10. So I I, can't, I have no gripes with it. It's just my sixth. That's all. Yeah, I think in terms of, I has number four, is number one from John Stanko, number two from Sam, number two from Dan, number one from Nick, and number five from Martino. So you were the lowest at six. So that explains a lot. If it's the lowest at six, that's a quality movie right there. This is one where I feel like I love it, and it's just amazing. Look at the list. Thor's second movie is 23. It is dead last. The turnaround from that one to Ragnarok is so dramatic, and you can tell Chris Hemsworth having so much more fun being Thor in it, and Taika Waititi saved that franchise because I think if you're not in that movie, Chris Hemsworth is gone after his contract is up in the endgame. Now he's re-energized. He's going to be in a couple more movies. I think this saves the franchise. Jeff Goldblum is fantastic. Basically just being Jeff Goldblum as a villain, which I love, is so funny. And you get Korg and Meek, who are probably fantastic, who are fantastic sidekicks. Fantastic sidekick. So funny. It's the funniest movie. It's no doubt about it. It's the funniest one. I have no real problems with this, so I'm fine with it. I think it's phenomenal. And to reset, the reason I think the why it's the Infinity War ends up lower is that we had 7, 12, 9 in the middle of the chart from Stanko, Sam, and Dan. Everybody else had it. We had three ones, me, you, and Martino, and Nick gave it a four. So that's the separating factor here. Yeah. To reset the list from the bottom, 23, Thor of the Dark World. 22, Iron Man 2. 21, The Incredible Hulk. 20, Iron Man 3. 19, Doctor Strange. 18, Ant-Man the Wasp. 17, Captain Marvel. 16, Thor. 15, Ant-Man. 14, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. 13, Avengers Age of Ultron. 12, Spider-Man Far From Home. 11, Captain America the First Avenger. 10, Captain America Civil War. 9, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 1. 8, Black Panther. Seven Avengers Endgame, six Spider-Man Homecoming, five Iron Man, four Captain America Winter Soldier, three the original Avengers, two Avengers Infinity War, and number one, Thor Ragnarok. Congratulations, Chris Hensworth. Yeah, congrats, Chris, Taika, everybody. Yeah, stellar job, and this is a lot of fun. I did enjoy this. Me too, me too. And hey, we'll do it again in 10 years when the next groups of movies add to the list. We'll, we'll do uh, another up, countdown. Yeah, we'll, we'll update the list in a couple, like after, after Phase 6. After phase six, sounds good. Because you know what? TV series are going to get their own rankings at that yeah. point. Yeah, that's true. I mean, in terms of the TV series rankings, you mentioned before, you said you put both of the, of the TV shows. If they were movies, this is a collective and you put them in the middle of the pack. So, like, that's basically, you feel like, where they belong? Yeah, I'm not a huge, huge fan of either series, although I did love watching them, and I was, like, engrossed fully. I think both series have a lot of, like, issues. And, you know, I, I, I think that... They're they're very good. They're very good hours of television each episode. Although WandaVision might have been shorter, yeah. Uh, if I yes, yeah, WandaVision but, about thirty minutes each. 
WandaVision didn't sit too well with me after it was all said and done as the days and weeks went by. And Falcon and the Winter Soldier, I think, had some really good moments, but on the whole felt a little empty at times. So I think they're good, and I'm glad I watched them. And I think both set up some really interesting things to look forward to. All right, here's where I put them personally. I put WandaVision between Far From Home and Age of Ultron. I think that's where it belongs for me. It's like right about where the same spot. So what number? That would be 13. Yeah, it's about, I said mine were tied for 13th, if you will, but 12, 13, that area. I have Falcon and the Winter Soldier far lower, though. I would have it between Doctor Strange and Iron Man 3. Wow, that's pretty low. Because I think that this is one where they did not understand how to write for TV, and they were, their pacing was off on this. They had a lot of odd writing choices. I think it, this is one where I think they want, if they wrote this as a two-hour movie, it would have been a far better product than the six-hour show. Yeah, I'd say Falcon and the Winter Soldier didn't really get cooking until episode five. Yeah. And when there's only six, that's a problem. I think the biggest takeaway was that obviously Falcon is now Captain America. Bucky's still around. I did not think he'd make it out alive of this series. And Julia Louis-Dreyfus is going to be really fun going forward. I think the Zemo storyline was completely bizarre and out of place this time around. You're going to have this guy who was such a big villain in Civil War just be let out of prison to help them. And he suddenly has all his riches back and his butler. And it just felt so weird. It, it did feel weird. And I do think it'd be fun to get, we have four movies coming this year, believe it or not, because they're trying to catch up. And Black Widow is the first one out of the canon. It was supposed to go out last May. And then COVID pushed it back about three separate times. Now we're on July 9th. What are you hoping for out of this movie? I'm hoping for a good, like closure to the Black Widow character that she's deserved all along. This should be her movie. Like, ignore all the stuff it could set up going forward. Scarlett Johansson deserves this. Black Widow deserves this. It should be Black Widow's movies. And yes, obviously, I know they wanted to debut Julie Louis-Dreyfus in Black Widow, which is a kind of spoiler, but it's not confirmed, so we'll see. But I And, and I think they're setting up so Florence Pugh's character will come back in the future. But this should be Black Widow's swan song, so to speak. That's what I'm expecting from it, and that's what I hope for it. Yeah, I'm a little nervous about this one because this is one where I don't know how the audience will react. In fact, we're going backwards in time here because this is set between this is after Captain America Civil War. We are basically, at this point, nearly five, six years away from the original source material. So I'm curious to see how the audience reacts to like the fact we're, oh, we're going back in time as opposed to we're going forward like we've been with TV shows. Which makes me think that there's going to be a lot of setup in this movie. Yeah, that's the thing that worries me. I thought like they're using it as a... We're going to have, have uh, Scarlett Johansson be our lead and then just sell a bunch, spin a bunch of stuff. Yeah, I get that. I, I do have high hopes for this movie because of Black Widow. So we'll see. Yeah, we will see. Alan, thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, I'll be a fine social media. What's the stuff you're up to? Awesome. Uh, thank you for having me, Mike. My social media is Twitter at Alan underscore Austin underscore. And on Instagram at Alan Austin Sports. This was a blast. I was so happy to do this. So happy you asked me. And I had a, such a fun time. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And again, you can follow me on Twitter, MFL331. If you want to come at, like, let us know how you think of this list when it takes Jake down. Again, remember, we don't take credit for all the decisions. This is a seven person effort. So we're not the ones responsible. Like your favorite movie is not as high as it should be. Yeah. And I got to say, the next batch of films, Shang-Chi trailer looked awesome. Uh, the Eternals, I'm very intrigued. I don't know what they're going for. And I have never been more excited for a movie than Spider-Man No Way Home with all the question marks and hype going into it. That one I'm worried about, actually. 
Oh, gosh. Maybe we should talk about it come time when it's about to be released. Yeah, that will be a future problem. I will tell you off the air what it is, but I will save that as a tease for a future podcast appearance. But until then, have a good one, guys. All right, and that will do it for this week's show. I want to thank my guest, Mark Berman, the New York Post, for coming on to help me preview Knicks Hawks, Martino Puccio for coming on to set us up for Nets Celtics in the first round of the NBA playoffs. I also want to thank Alan Austin. We just heard we took a deep dive into the podcast Marvel Cinematic Universe movie rankings, and that was a bit surprising seeing Thor Ragnarok sort of swoop in there and be the top overall movie according to the, the panelists that we had assembled for this. So definitely a fun chat with Alan there. Or because I like this podcast, including... My thoughts on why we don't need a six-part documentary about Derek Jeter. I don't know if you've heard. ESPN is giving him the 30 for 30 last dance treatment. I'll tell you why I think it's a bad idea over at justinthesuffering.wordpress.com. You can check out the blog for that. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon, all the usual suspects. Simply search for Just and the Suffering, your favorite podcast platform. You can find all our episodes there. Feel free to your feedback and starring as well. It'll make the podcast even better going forward. Go check out my YouTube page, Mike Phillips, on YouTube for the individual conversations from all of our episodes as they happen. You can also follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. And that's going to do it for this week's podcast. Coming out next week, we're going to dive into baseball because we're getting close to Memorial Day. And so you start looking at the baseball things the first time in a long season. We'll do that. We'll dive into the pop culture a little bit more and more. So then have a good week, everybody. This has been the Just End the Suffering Podcast. I'm out.